smell it when I come in the morning. Did you first play? I'll bet you could suck a golf ball through a garden hose. Good morning, Vietnam! You let me worry about that green beret. Napalm in the morning. Your first, last, and only podcast for the Vietnam War through film. Good morning, campers. Hey, campers. I hope you're uh, staying dry in those uh, plastic tarp tents you got rolled up uh, there in the mud. Um, yeah. yeah good campers is good for this one because um, there are campers in our film, and our film this week is Woodstock. Woodstock. Yes, and uh, I was just almost literally a stone's throw away uh, last, well, when we're recording this, I guess it's couple weeks ago yeah um i mean matt's a huge limp biscuit fan and so he was there wanted to cover real the sort of the ins and outs of woodstock i wanted to break stuff (laughs) we are not covering woodstock 99 although you will hear you will hear reference uh to that storied event um we're in fact covering uh the og the woodstock uh we've got here build an aquarian exposition three days of peace and music yeah, and it seemed mostly peaceful and musical. Yeah, lots and, of and wet. Lots of both those things. Um, and, and specifically for those uh, playing along at home, uh, this is a director's cut uh, of the of the of the movie. Yes, that's that the one we viewed. So we had yeah. an extra forty minutes or so. Yeah, yeah. Of stuff. Mostly people bathing um, and yes. laying, laying down in the woods. That's. <laughs> Was that the difference? We need we need a we need a frame by frame, a side by side. Well, it's got additional footage. The airplane's not in the original. Um, ah, okay, good point. And yeah, so so we can talk about that as we go too. Um, but uh, yeah, so this week we are uh, recording this at roughly ten a.m. So <laughs> there is not a beer of the week this week. We can yeah we can have a here. I'll do the sound effect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, no, no, this is water of the week. I have coffee, uh, <laughs> coffee of the week. I'm um, out of the water fountain. Maybe we should have a marijuana of the week. So, yeah, for this episode. Uh, I have some aquifocal gold uh, here, and uh, we'll be burning one down uh, as we go. I have, uh, I have the mescaline, and what Matt doesn't know is I have put that in his uh, Starbucks drink, and he is... Uh, about to take a trip and oh, never good. leave the farm. Oh, man. Oh, we're going to be peaking about halfway through this episode. It'll be perfect. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll talk about, uh, for those in the know. Uh, Which I assume is most of our audience. Uh, yeah, like, come on. And um, But, yeah, I'm, uh, uh, we, we might have some new listeners on this one. I should say, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm Dr. Jones. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Dr. Yagle. Yeah, and we're two uh, kind of history nerds that. Uh, well, professional historians too. But. Yeah, also also professional historians, and um, yeah, lo- loving the uh, Matt in particular. Check out his book coming out, Cornell Press. Um, yeah, I gotta still gotta finish the copy edits in the uh, uh, on on this period of U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia. So what I'm saying is, uh, we're experts. He more than me in this field, but we're experts. Many people uh, are saying. <laughs> many people are. Um, yeah, so, uh, where, where do we start here, Matt? Let's just jump into Woodstock background information on it, um, and the idea of the music festival is not something that is, by 1969, new, um, 
Newport Jazz Festival, Folk Festival, they've been going on, you know, since the 50s, for example. Yeah. Um, the latter, the Folk Festival, that's where Dylan went. He went rogue, folks, and he went electric. Plugged in. And, uh, yeah, with the band. Well, they would become the band, but, you know, those guys. Um, but, probably, but, 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 it's, but we're seeing, like, a, over the 60s, culturally, a kind of, you know, kind of youth culture and a phenomenon of yeah. sort of this, this is change, this is a difference between sort of old people tapping their toes to the jazz. Yeah, um, the most direct inspiration is probably Monterey International Pop Festival 1967, which featured some of the same yeah. acts, so The Who, Dead, Airplane, Hendrix. Can't he? Um, they were the later one, maybe. Anyway. And... 200,000 roughly uh, in attendance, and that was kind of organized by uh, John Phillips and others of uh, of the, he, of the mamas. John Phillips, who said? Mamas and the papas. And, uh, yeah, so that's always also a very famous uh, film um, and, uh, you know, soundtrack and everything. Um, so that's probably the most yeah. direct inspiration for a large festival like this. And so then then you start seeing 68 into 69, more of these things happening. Specifically, this one, Michael Lang, previously he cobbled together the Miami Pop Festival in 1968. Uh, I believe they released the Hendrix set of that. I think I have that. Um, yeah. From Miami Pop 68. Um, Artie Kornfeld uh, was kind of a journeyman in the music business of sorts, and these are the two guys that are kind of spearheading it, and then they're kind of backed by some financial people um, into getting it going. So, yeah, the idea is let's hold it in Woodstock because, hey, man, that's where Dylan and the band are hanging out, and so, like, we could just do it there, right? And it is... Let's go to them. Yeah, so that's, like, a, f a connection that people are aware of, and the band's album, you know, Music from Big Pink, had just come out uh, in 68. Um, they recorded the basement tapes with Dylan in 67, um, do you think there was? Do you think it, from the organizers, this cachet in mind, like this is like this is a a hip area? I think so. Yeah, and I mean, it becomes like like a lot of people do kind of kind of move into that sort of general area. You know, we're talking kind of Catskills area, kind of Western New York, including the family of uh, Matthew Yagel, who who were who were OGs well, there. Yeah. yeah, well, that got dates back. Yeah, long time, but uh, <laughs> yeah, Dylan was following me. Yeah. Well, maybe not me. I wasn't alive. But, uh, yeah. Um, so they thought they were going to do it there, but it fell through. You know, um, the local residents, this will become a theme, are, uh, of course, freaked out and uh, say, oh, God, no, we don't want this place overrun by 50,000 hippies, right? Although we'll flash forward to some of the of the film, uh, which is, which is where they interview a bunch of business owners, and they're like, Hey, we have like a four hundred percent growth in yeah in, in, in sales yeah. this week. Like it's this is this is awesome. <laughs> so not everyone hated it. Um, they Winston Farm and Saugerties. They thought that was might be a location that fell through, and then Wallkill. So if you look at some of the posters and stuff, it says like in Wallkill, New York, uh, Woodstock Festival. You know, coming some of the early ones, coming yeah. this August. Yeah. You know, um, they thought it had it line up, but then in July, the town board voted to require permits for any gathering of more than 5,000 people. And they were expecting at that point about 50. And they did that, of course, on purpose because they had no actual intention of giving them the permit. So it was a, a way for the town board to just essentially crush the festival. 
um, from going forth there at that location. Um, well, they, but on those posters, they had a QR code where people could just scan and see like the updated, <laughs> yeah. most updated right, information, right? right. Exactly. So. Um, yeah. So that's in July. So I mean, this takes place in mid-August. Already, we yeah. don't we don't have a firm. We location don't, and we don't have yet. a location yet. So, <laughs> um, so the idea, but I think it's interesting, like this um, idea that it's being banned. You know, maybe in air quotes, banned the festival. Like I think that helps uh. with promotion. Like they don't want this festival to go off, right? Um, it's it, it, are you so you're saying you, you what you heard it here first? What Matt is saying is that this is like basically a uh, uh, Kim Kardashian sex film. This is this is this is staged in order to uh, is that what I'm saying? Get, get tons of, I, I, that's what I thought. Directed pretty much interpretation. Okay, of what you're saying. it's interesting. You go there first. I was going someplace more like Ron DeSantis, but uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, Okay, so there's a lot of back and forth, more fighting over permits. They get the uh, finally get it through at Max Yasger's Dairy Farm in Bethel, New York. So that's where I was just right by. As Eric said, been going there forever. Um, and yeah, there was also protests there too, like stop buying Max's milk. Max's milk is for communists, you know, and stuff <laughs> like that uh, by local people. But uh, it uh, it goes through with days to spare. They don't even have enough time to complete both the stage and, like, the kind of ticketing uh, fencing stuff, so they have to pick one. Like, should we finish the ticketing stuff and have no place to play music, or should we finish the stage? And <laughs> they decided to finish the stage. So Kind of. As a, as a person who knows a little bit about building, like, it is it is nerve-wracking to watch, like, yeah, well, that oh, stage yeah. both being built and being, like, it's, it's, like, and realize that also, like, you've only got, this is happening, like, minutes before the festival like things are getting put into place yeah like and we'll talk about some of the stage <laughs> issues yes the uh, stage itself yeah somebody else might talk about that stuff too um we yeah so what uh wednesday before the show uh there are already maybe 40 50 000 people already there at the site and the show doesn't start until friday and so at that point they're like well guess we're not gonna be able to finish the fencing little late now yeah and you really you really see the. i mean resignation is the wrong it's it's a healthy resignation on the part of the organizers they're like look just gotta let them in <laughs> and yeah and they talk about that in the film too uh i think it's michael lang talking about you know the backers financial backers are going to take a bath and all this and stuff and so the f the concert festival itself is a money loser but they had the rights to film and soundtrack and stuff, and that's where they're going to make all their money back, and then it turns into yeah, it would be so corporate yeah. everything. <laughs> Do so. you know the bottom line at the end of Woodstock '69? Did like way the time dust settles on uh, movie and album sales? Like oh, I don't actually. It, 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 but, it had to have made money though. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, the film like it got uh, the Oscar for best documentary, um, and it yeah. was like one of the biggest grossing movies of 1970 so yeah okay so not that but, but yeah it, it, it's funny it's kind of glib like all those losers who backed us they're really gonna take a bath on this <laughs> they get that said if i was if i was an investor watching it'd be like hey you should pretend at least to be a little more sad about losing my money um, they thought as it, things drew closer they might get 200,000 people there are 120,000 tickets sold in advance um, they, of course, has to be declared a free concert. 
Um, this idea of a large crowd on a farm with political music, uh, kind of returning to the roots of America or Americana, like let's go back to the garden, um, which is of course famous in Joni Mitchell's song Woodstock. Um, Going up the country, yeah. Yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, that's that's like the idea of it. Uh, if you are a faithful listener to the film or to the podcast, you would probably note that like we kind of go through chronological order with the film and kind of talk about things and we decided not to do that with this film because <laughs> yeah the fi- the, fi- the 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 film doesn't follow i mean there are two problems one is that like um sort of describing uh, a musical performance blow by blow is like trying to describe how why comedy is and then you slid down to the a chord <laughs> and so uh and and also the film does not at all um follow uh, a, a, a narrative or or the performance schedule or whatever. So it, so it's kind of it's it's more impressionistic certainly, and so that's I think makes sense. Plus we've uh, I don't know we, we'll keep teasing here. We've got a very special guest that we want to um, that we want you to listen to after we're done uh, chatting about this. So um, we don't want to take too much time yeah. for that. Somebody who was there. Yeah. Who may have not just performed a, there. Yeah, not just a drugged out hippie in the crowd. Or those people who say they were there. Uh, it's like the pieces, the pieces of the true cross. You know, if every if everyone was actually there, would be like it would equal like a thousand trees. Like how many true hippies like say they were at Woodstock, but actually were. You know, if, if all of them were actually at Woodstock, there. I would thought have been you were like, going to say, could we turn into the cross? Like how many hippie bones would it take to make a cross or something? I don't know, but I'm sure that was uh, that was a uh, part of the uh, it was part of the Nixon campaign. Uh, <laughs> He, he ran that he ran he ran on that hard. Damn heavy. <laughs> um, yeah. So so yeah, we're gonna be going and, and talking a, a bit about uh, um, that. But uh, but the ta- the ta- it's a small town, and and then um, you know the road the roads go. There's we're not talking about a freeway situation going in there, are we, Matt? No, they're like you know small highways, um, two lane stuff. Yeah, two lanes, as you can see in the film, like a lot of you know backup for. You know, miles and miles, people just like, all right, well, guess we're walking from here. And uh, it seems like the sentiment is kind of, is not one of like frustration and, you know, all this. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember when I went to uh, Bonnaroo, there is like a huge backup and, you know, we're waiting in line for several hours in the car. Um, and, you know, it was kind of frustrating, but they had do have like open uh, container laws, okay, in, in Tennessee. So that made it easier, I guess. <laughs> Because okay. um, we were just partying in the in the car while we were going, but um, yeah, so uh, yeah, it's 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 the film kind of starts with uh, well, long time gone. Crosby, Stills and Nash is the uh, first song played. It's a studio version. That album comes out in I believe May of '69, uh, and that I think in a lot of ways that album is a soundtrack to the summer of '69, of and yeah, uh, it's a biggie. Um, I mean, br- I mean, no offense, but uh, Brian Adams' "Summer '69" is the 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 song of '69. So, <sighs> I wish you could see his face. <laughs> oh. um, Can't heat going up the country. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, wooden ships. These are all studio cuts that are kind of as we're getting a montage of kind of building of stage. Smoking of dope, people walking, uh, yeah, you know things like that. So we're prepping for the show. 
people riding people riding motorcycles and uh, dune buggies and uh, yeah, look fun. Yeah, look cool. They're they're like uh, shirtless dudes um, building stages, and uh, it's a whole uh, it's a whole operation. Um, you can sell. You can tell there's uh, um, tons of excitement in the air. Just people are ready to. People are down to clown here. They're ready to party. Should we talk about some of the? How do you want to do this? Do you want to go into some of the problems during yeah. the? Should we start there? Yeah. That's okay. A good, so that's pretty good. so problems technical issues are just like. Throughout, there are technical issues, so that could be something as semi-mundane as like issues with headsets, cabling. Um, the roads are obviously overcrowded. We mentioned um, just getting the band set up, ready to go, was an issue, right? Because and and I don't know if you want to talk about this now, but the sort of the stage, the the initial design of the stage was a cool one. Like, hey, we'll have the front. The stage will rotate. A, a giant lazy Susan is the stage. Yeah. And so one band will set up, be playing in the front, and then the other end you set up facing the other way, and then you rotate that stage. So there's no there's no lost time. One stage, and you can rotate the axe in right. and out. Um, yeah, that broke almost immediately because people were just, like, <laughs> hanging out on the stage. Just too much weight, basically. Yeah. And it kind of, yeah. So that, that, that I like the idea. Execution yeah. left something maybe to be desired. I mean, overcrowding. I think mean, you you talked about this. Uh, the you know the bands, um, you know, the, they had to be choppered in. That was another part of the problem. The choppity choppity. Yeah, get in the chopper. <laughs> um, they had to. Uh, <laughs> they had to get into the you know the, 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 the there was some there was some that collaboration. That was really bad, <laughs> by the way. Like. <laughs> I was a spe- special guest, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, your spur of the moment. You need to prep. I got to get in Arnold headspace. Uh, so, um, yeah, they 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 have to fly. They have to fly the axe in. And uh, a certain special guest who you hear later talked about. Uh, oh man, when Pigpen and I were coming in on the chopper, you could just see a sea of people. It was amazing. <laughs> um, removing porta potties. Trucks couldn't really get through very easily. There's actually a scene of the guy in the film, a guy um, cleaning out. Well, I'll get back to that actually uh, later. But, um, you know, lo- that is a huge problem. Still less feces than Woodstock 99. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a big thing in Woodstock 99, too. Um, during the rainstorm, which, you know, has kind of become very famous with uh, associated with Woodstock, the uh, power cords that were running to the towers were becoming exposed. So they thought that potentially we might electrocute half a million people. Um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and uh, and uh, yeah. Th- this is a this is a, a talking point for the people in bands who played uh, at at Woodstock. Is that that same unstable, ungrounded power uh, also also would be uh, the, this this festival is electric for several reasons, man. Well, yeah, during one band in particular set, um, which we'll come back to. Um, oh yeah, the stage was also sinking. That was another thing. Yeah. So let's just say there are several problems. Yeah, people getting shocked um, on on stage, uh, breaking breaking immediately. Um, yeah, no, the the the. But in general, people people's attitude though seemed like they were rolling with everything. Uh, the the crowd and the people on the stage were. Um, yeah. Oh, did you mention the problem um, with the brown acid? <laughs> Oh, I did not mention the problem with the brown acid. <laughs> That's one of the most <laughs> the famous clips from the, <laughs> it, it, the the on from the stage. You hear an announcement: 
Okay, everybody. Uh, there's been an it's, issue uh, with the yeah. That's Chipmunk <laughs> okay. uh, announcing from the stage with the brown acid. Uh, do not take the brown acid. Something's wrong with the brown acid. Uh, by implication, take the other acid. Or is that John Morris? Maybe that's John Morris on that announcement. Sorry. Yeah, I can't remember. For your Woodstock heads. It's uh, um, it's a pretty funny announcement. Yeah. Well, in late, uh, during the uh, – well, we, we mentioned the shocking. I'll just tell this now so I can tell the story. But uh, the when the dead are playing, their uh, sound guy, uh, Owsley Stanley Bear, uh, kind of reconfigures their entire setup. But, like, left something ungrounded, I guess. And so Bob Weir, guitar player, is getting shocked every time he, like, touches his strings and stuff. So there's a big delay, like, during their set, and at one point during that delay, uh, Country Joe comes up and also gives another acid warning, which is not as famous, but I think he's <laughs> warning about the uh, green acid, I believe, okay. something like that. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, he's like, we, we're, you know, Bay Area people, we do tons of acid, man. We know what we're talking about when it comes to acid, and, you know, uh, we're the experts and careful with this stuff, et cetera. Um, yeah, so acid. Yeah, there's potentially issues there. Yeah, some, a lot of people were freaking out and you know ending up in medical tents and stuff. So, yeah, that, and then and uh, it'll 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 come up later. We're going to talk about some of our highlights. Uh, acid will 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 factor in on those. Um, uh, what else with uh, with sort of food lodging stuff? How do they sort of they're they're you know what do they do? They 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 charge everyone uh, fifteen dollars for a hamburger. Uh, well, that does become an actual issue, uh, the price of hamburgers. Um, let me come to that. Um, the hog farm, which is kind of this, like, adjacent, like, you just cut through the woods a little bit. There's, like, actually a second auxiliary stage there where where people would play music um, at the hog farm. But the hog farm also fed, like, estimated 160,000 people for free. Um, mostly they, like, just got, like, a shit ton of brown rice and used that as, uh, okay. as like, kind of the good base for food. Um, you mentioned burgers. Uh, one burger stand was burned down. Uh, the owner raised the price of burgers from 25 cents to a dollar uh, to kind of gouge the, uh, the crowd. Um, that was right after the corn set. They, uh, they, people were furious. Yeah. And they, um, uh, so I don't have the specifics on like on how that uh, actually went down or happened, but from stage, um, uh, what's the dude's name um, who makes the makes the announcement about the burger stand? This is at the toward the end of the film. Um, I'm forgetting his name now. He's in the film often, um, but he you know says you know something like, "Hey, if you still believe in that like capitalism thing, man, maybe you like go help the guy out and buy a burger from him." Uh, so. <laughs> Huh. Nice sentiment. Um, people, people were people were pretty skinny in 1969. There, the the I don't think they were eating as much as, or maybe the the, uh, um, no one was starving though. Well, there was not enough food overall. That is true. I mean, there was not enough food. They had to get like local donations, and this is interesting. Like they would like chopper the food in. It like looks eerily similar to Vietnam. Like when a helicopter comes in, like to guys yeah. out in the field, and they're like you know, bringing supplies in. So you just have, like, people run up to the helicopter and grab, like, the box of, like, you know, sea rations or ammo or whatever, and then yeah. take they're, like, loading the boxes off real quick. It looked a lot like that. Like, this is a <laughs> military helicopter bringing in food rations for um, people in, at Woodstock. And and uh, Dr. Yeagle has identified a bunch of, we'll talk about later, a bunch of Vietnam uh, crossovers uh, with uh, with Woodstock, which is why on a... 
uh, that's why we're doing the film. on a podcast. That's why we're yeah. doing this film. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so the 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 sleeping situation, you know, as a as now the sort of the dad me was like, oh, like it would be so uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> what, what are you gonna lay down? What yeah. are you gonna do? Yeah, where am I gonna hook up my CPAP machine? Come on. Is there a VIP tent? Where do the VIP uh, people yeah. go? Yeah, exactly. There's none of uh, it's. Although it's not fire festival, I guess these or or the people were really willing to. Um, I think they knew what they were getting into, which is, you know, you're gonna. Which is we don't really know what's gonna happen. I think, and they yeah. were okay with that. Yeah, like there's not nothing. Nothing was promised in terms mm-hmm. of like care and and. <laughs> And and t- taking care of you in a other, in any other way but the mu- delivering music and so yeah yeah I think people went into a different headspace yeah uh, for sure share what you have if you have extra share it maybe you'll get some later um, yeah but yeah lodging is there I mean there is no lodging there is no VIP section uh, you know you got a tent try to set it up and see how it goes. Um, mis- limited for musicians, too. The tech tent actually had to be converted into, like, a field hospital, essentially. Uh, the tent where, like, the tech people were supposed to these like uh, hang out and, and uh, sleep and stuff. People ODing? Or these yeah, stuff? yeah, yeah. Mo- I think mostly drug stuff, yeah, yeah. The, um, there was also, <laughs> this made me think about, you realize the time before, you know, cell phones, obviously, um, you have things from the stage, like, Hey Susan, um, Gary is looking for you. Uh, you can go to come up to the side of the stage. There's, there's there's those like really funny announcements. Yeah, or I like the ones like, to be, like um, Jane, your father's on the phone. Uh, if you could uh, go to the uh, yeah. welcome tent uh, and talk and talk talk to him, please. So, be like, oh, your daddy's on the phone. <laughs> go call daddy. <laughs> Yeah, and then and then and then I, I also like panic thinking about like if you look at the crowd, it, it is just a massive sea of people, and there's no there's no like defined areas like trying to f- the logistics of trying to find your people if you come back like every, yeah. everyone looks the same because of shirtlessness and mud. Um, mm-hmm. So it would it's not exactly like uh, yeah somebody has a glow stick. Yeah, <laughs> and I was like to compare to like a, a Bonnaroo or something like which has multiple stages and multiple places to go. Um, you know, I was there with a bunch of people, and it's like if you want to meet up somewhere, you say okay, let's meet at this part yeah. of this stage at this time, and then you can you can do that. But if it's at Woodstock, yeah. it's like. I'm going to go to the bathroom. Here's this ocean maybe, of people. Maybe I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> like, uh, you know, um. Right, right. Let's meet Let's meet back at the Corvair uh, down the road um, yeah. two days from now. Yeah, it was, uh, uh, it was a different time for sure. Um, yeah, but I think it effectively captured a moment in time. I think the movie doesn't yes. really, really, that's like, I think that's partly why it, may, it got the uh, Oscar for best uh, documentaries that I think it does do a really good job of capturing a moment in time. Um, and this idea of peace, you know, this peace and love, man, peace and love, which, you know, I think looking back, you know, I don't know, maybe... Some naivete. Yeah, yeah of course. but um, it's framed, that's, why is it peace? Why is it love? Why Why are those, like, the slogans? It's because of the war. It's the war in Vietnam, right? Um, yeah, and right, and you can see, and you can see the way that again, I think we've said this before, but like you know, a lot of the films cover this area of where the United States 
culturally and politically, it will never change as much as it. There's never been a ten year gap that is where more um, profound social and cultural changes have happened. Uh, whether it's civil civil rights act, whether it's feminism, whether it's uh, you, you know the, the war itself. Well, maybe now and, undoing and, uh, undoing all those changes. <laughs> trying to yeah. So yeah. But but it but it right so the so the this captures a kind of a um, a completely different or they've ab- a lot of the kids youth have abandoned um, old ways of sort of traditional ways of thinking and doing and this is an expression of um, teach your parents well yeah exactly uh, that that kind of youthful optimism which is which is easy to make fun of uh, because but you know like these are this is. There are far worse ambitions that people have, right? That uh, even if it's jousting windmills, um, th- th- this is a pretty good one. Cause cancer. <laughs> Gonna joust them, take them out. They're causing cancer. Do you see the birds? The piles of birds under the windmills. Uh, Do you want to talk some of the, our, our explicit Vietnam stuff in here? Yeah, sure. Explicit and implicit. Explicit. Vietnam references in the film. Uh, I'll start. First song. Well, first live song is Richie Havens, Handsome Johnny, which is about not just Vietnam, but it's about, uh, you know, a a young soldier going off to war. Um, And that is our first introduction to music from the stage in the film. And he was the first dude to play. Yeah, in so many ways, like the 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 war provided this backdrop for um, a lot of the a lot of the, the those those ambitions and high hopes for a different for peace were were framed, uh, you know, in in high relief because of because of the war. The 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 peace side wouldn't have meant as much if the war side wasn't yeah. um, raging. And so, um, yeah, and, and you know, as you've got here, there are notes. Uh, Joan Baez um, discusses her husband's imprisonment uh, for draft resistance. I think we we covered that as well uh, a bit, um, but yeah. So so they're like it's it's affecting it's affecting people's lives. Obviously, yeah. Who who people who were deployed will talk to our special guest. Who some of the performers had been in the military and discharged. Some of the people uh, and obviously many of the people in the crowd had been directly impacted, um, they themselves or, or friends and family in the war. So it's a, it, it, it's it's hard to even, we can't wrap our heads around how, how much that would define that experience. Yeah. Um, U.S. Army helicopters, they're used to fly in medical teams and medical supplies. And they, John Morris announces from the stage, <laughs> they're with us, man, they're not against us. Um, and then you get a big cheer from the crowd and, you know, I think... Don't trip out, man. Well, I, th- I think looking back, you know, it's all like the, you know, returning soldiers were spat upon and called baby killers and all this stuff. And um, that's like so fringe and like there isn't even like a, an actual documented instance of a soldier being spat on. Um, and it's quite fringe. I think a lot, if you look at actual protest signs um, that discuss soldiers, it's like we love the GIs, bring them home, like type sentiment. Yeah. And you saw the same during... Um, Iraq, well, Iraq, do part do, um, which is a lot of like sports troops bring the troops home, 
um, yeah, t- t- right, right. Treat our treat our soldiers well. Take care of them. Like, yeah. The, so, yeah, I think the the that's a good point. Um, yeah. The crowd is. Um, they they don't. They Would don't you say they're a rules. liberal crowd? Maybe I'd say I'd say they're fairly progressive. Progressive. Um, lot lot of uh, commies. I saw a lot of Bernie, um, you know, T-shirts out there, uh, stickers. So, um, what else? Uh, I mean, I'm gonna um, maybe maybe I'll I'll, sp- I'll do a little quick spoiler. Um, one of my one of my highlights is uh, country uh, country Joe McDonald's. Um, feel like I'm fixing a die rag. Um, it's such a it's such a like a kind of a clever way of critiquing like the, the kind of comically weird owl esque. Um, it's like sarcastic yeah. to no end. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with like the fact that he's ex military. It's kind of like yeah. dark GI humor almost. Right. I can, um, I can say these things. I'm yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. I've, I've been there. Um, and so it's a, uh, it's a really, um, uh, you know, what are we, what are we fighting for? Um, it's be the first one on your block to have your boy come home in a box. That's one of the lines <laughs> in that. Yeah. So it's, so it's really dark humor and, um, and, and he's, he's such an enigmatic, charismatic, um, kind of kooky performer that, uh, that's, that's hard to, but, but, but an explicit Vietnam. Yeah. And he's wearing his, his, uh, army, uh, like jacket. Yeah. Uh, the airplane, Uncle Sam's Blues. They play that with uh, good old Yorma taking lead vocals, and that's uh, Uncle Sam, of course. Uh, and his blues are about war. Um, so that's another one. Uh, I mentioned that the issues with cleaning out the toilets and everything. So the guy that they they show him in the in the film who's cleaning out the toilets, and they're t- interviewing him briefly and talking to him. And he has one son at the festival, and he has another son that's in Vietnam at the time. Wow. Uh, and I think a lot of families maybe had something similar going on. Uh, and so he's just kind of navigating it. And he was not like, you know, he was totally cool. He wasn't, he wasn't like down on the, uh, young, young crowd or anything. He's like, Hey, I'm just here to, you know, do my job and help them out. They need their toilets cleaned. I'm here to do it and help them. And, uh, and I've got my other kid. He's up by the DMZ flying helicopters. And so, yeah. Um, it was an interesting brief little exchange with him. Um, right, that probably captures what what a lot of people their their own lived experience. Like the, by by now the by sixty nine the war hit, hit many people in draft from that are almost as no town that's not affected by um, that doesn't have a you know one of the, some of their youth are involved and so it's it's uh, it's pretty real. And then and then finally most famously what is it Matt the the uh, the, the reference to um, anti Vietnam sentiment. Star Spangled Banner. That's right. Jimi Hendrix is kind of it's a seminal performance of uh, that song, and um, you know he starts out playing it, and it's pretty straightforward. But when you get to the kind of bombs bursting in air lines and stuff, he makes it sound like they're bursting in air, you know, with his uh, guitar. Uh, and it's it's kind of become a counterculture it's it's very much part of the counterculture that performance of the song and his rendition of it and and i think hendrix is speaking for protesting against i think war uh for civil rights um and he talks to uh dick cavett about it 
uh, afterward, and Cavett says, you know, some people like had a big problem with uh, your rendition. You know, it's kind of a bastardization of the song or whatever. And uh, Hendrix said, you know, well, I don't feel like it was that way at all. I thought it was beautiful. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, this is not wasn't a one off thing. He had actually been playing it since uh, August of '68. He played it 63 times in concert between '68 and '70, uh, and um, so it was a part of uh, his set for about two years, um, the song. But really, he and there will be other, like maybe Townsend, other, but who are really the guitars being, or watching it um, being used in ways that it never was before and like innovated. And so like it's it's talking, making sound effects. It's it's really like a, yeah. um, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, and I think it's it for, for sort of every future guitar player, uh, you know, there, there, there's the the kind of Jimi Hendrix pushes opens this envelope like here, just what you could do with a guitar that yeah. you didn't think is possible. Yep. So he's uh, yeah, pretty it, that that it doesn't get more iconic than that. That's for sure. Um, all right. So what are your what are some of uh, what are some of your highlights and lowlights, Matt? What do you what do you what do you got in the old chamber? Uh, highlights. Well, should I do fun facts and then highlights? yeah, let's do let's uh, do and then yeah, let's fun facts. Okay. The first performer I mentioned was Richie Havens. He was not supposed to be the first performer. The first performer was supposed to be yeah. Sweetwater. They were uh, stuck in traffic. So Richie kind of filled in, uh, opened the show up. He And his performance is great. Um, it really is, yeah. And uh, Sweetwater goes on then after him. They get there. But How he, his hands aren't bleeding from uh, really playing that acoustic guitar. Oh, and he is just progress. drenched in sweat, man. Yeah. Like he is. Going and, for it. and when he exits stage, like kind of, not stage left or right, it's kind of stage backwards um, at the end, and he just kind of keeps playing, even though he's off mic, and he's just, like, just so into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a really cool moment. Uh, Ravi Shankar is at the festival. He, I think, probably be, has become more famous at that point because of the Beatles uh, and yeah. uh, George Harrison, probably most specifically. Um, but he plays a set there. Rains during a set. Hates his version of the set, uh, so he. Uh, but interestingly, even though he's not happy with it, he released an album, Ravi Shankar, at the Woodstock Festival. Fun fact: that was recorded in a studio uh, and was not live at all. Uh, so it's a joke. It's I feel a robbed. pulled one over your heads, people. Um, well, the fact that Ra- like the the again thinking of cultural sort of how it had moved, like, you know, this is like the, the kids are looking for um, alternatives to sort of uh, sort of narratives of how the world works that they had yeah. they had been exposed to in the 50s. And so, you know, experimenting with with uh, with with India, with um, uh, Eastern, quote unquote, Eastern wisdom. This is uh, this is super part of the package of um, right. Of dropping out, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, and they show that in the film too, like when they're doing like kind of you know yoga, yoga studies yeah. and right, like, right, right. man, you know, I used to like do like a shit ton of LSD and mescaline, man, <laughs> but now I know how to do yoga, <laughs> yeah. so it's like it's such a bigger trip than any of that. So like, uh, once you learn how to do that, guys, like you'll be like be able to just trip balls whenever you want, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's I forgot about that part. Yeah, he's really selling the uh, yeah the, the 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 kind of twelve step at yoga as twelve step program. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, rain begins initially Friday evening. It kind of pepper sets throughout oh, the boy. night. The incredible string band refuses to play in the rain, and that results in Melanie kind of in a last second she wasn't supposed to play fills in the spot. Um, incredible string band plays the next day. 
Joan Baez, we mentioned, uh, she is six months pregnant during her performance. There you go. Um, we're on to day two. Quill opens on Saturday. It's a pretty little-known Boston band, but they had uh, played some like local area shows for Michael Lang to help promote the festival, like get some awareness going for it. So they were then exchanged with the, the slot for that. Um, Country Joe McDonald plays a solo set. Eric mentioned his Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die rag performance. That is not planned. Uh, he is kind of filling time in the set because the next act was not ready to go, which would be Santana. Santana, not well-known band at the time. Their first album was not even out yet. They only got on the bill because Bill Graham pushed and basically begged for them to be put on the bill. Bill Graham, of course, famous San Francisco, mostly, well, Fillmore West, Fillmore East promoter. Um, Carlos Santana, uh, he thought he had plenty of time before going on stage. <laughs> so he took a, a bunch of mescaline while he was hanging out with Jerry Garcia. And then he was almost, right when he's starting to peak, is told, oh, by the way, uh, you're on now. Um, now, now, now or never. And... Um, yeah, let me... Let me uh, um let me, let me, in an interview, Carlos Santana talks about his performance, and he says, uh, you know, when we landed, the first person I saw was my brother and friend, Jerry Garcia. He looked like one of those yogis in a cave in the Himalayas. He had this beatific, everything is all right, already look. For me, it was like assurance. And then he tells you the story you said, like, hey, we're, um, uh, you know, you better get comfortable. You know, you're not going on until, like, 1 a.m. Like, you're cool. And it was, like, 1230 in the afternoon. Um, and he says, uh, Carlos says, I used to take LSD and mescaline a lot. So I knew the timing. And when Jerry gave me something to go comfortable, but, um, uh, two hours after I took it, there was in my face, uh, there was a face in my face saying, you need to go on right now. Otherwise you're not going to play. <laughs> <laughs> so he took, uh, now he, so he knowingly took, uh, mescaline yep. from, from Jerry Garcia. Uh, but he says, um, uh, later in this interview, um, the, the interviewer asked him, I assume that in 69, Jerry Garcia's mescaline was pretty uh, potent. And Carlos says, oh, it was. I'd been dosed by them a year before. It took me two or three days to coordinate after that one. <laughs> I'd been baptized into consciousness. And then he says, this is great. We knew already they had a reputation for dosing other bands. And since we were opening for them in Las Vegas, I made sure to carefully wash this Coca-Cola can I was going to drink. But what I didn't know is they know how to put a syringe in a soda can. Like, <laughs> okay, Jerry, <laughs> you're not allowed Jerry. to dose people who don't want to be dosed. Like, <laughs> this is bonkers to me. Like, uh, That's why you would not be hanging, man. I guess not. Yeah. Like, uh, Just got to be free and free and go, baby. Well, I, I, I got to be free and go, but other people don't get, don't get to tell me to be free and go. Dad. That's how you become free, man, is you just let you it go. Just crack it, it open go. your mind. You just let it go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> drummer Michael Shreve, he's amazing, man. Um, he's 20 years old, second youngest performer at Woodstock. Uh, John uh, Jocko Marcelino is a freshman at New York's Columbia University and the drummer for Sha Na Na. He is the youngest, but uh, Michael Shreve of Santana is the second youngest John Sebastian, also not on the bill, performs a impromptu set to fill a little bit of time. And you can kind of tell by his performance. Um, God, he is so out of his mind on something. Like, he is uh, <laughs> he is so drugged out. Um, 
Uh, Mountain Mountain plays their first album is not it doesn't even come out till the next year. Woodstock is their fourth fourth ever gig. What I, I will say that and and Mountain for those may who Mississippi Queen is maybe their most famous song, but they they are a huge deal. Uh, they're starting to and and they're one of the sort of what ifs of great rock bands that you know they're sort of uh, stories tell their their drug addiction sort of really scuttled the band's. Um, uh, f- future after the third album, but uh, they were they were sort of at, sort of Led Zeppelin like. Um, yeah, Cream. I mean, yeah, they yeah, were Cream right. freaks, and basically they're trying to kind of continue. Well, Cream dies in '68, and so they're kind of we'll we'll just take over. We'll be the next Cream, you know, yeah. kind of thing. And they're um, and they're they're an incredible band. Oh, Leslie, like, their live album yeah, is so amazing. Guitar player, really good. Yeah, um, God, yeah. Um, so, so fourth out. fourth ever gig is Woodstock. Uh, the Who, they arrive in the middle of the day and they are informed that they're not going on stage until early Sunday morning. Band members were provided with food and beverages and nobody told them that they were spiked with acid. <laughs> God damn it. Uh, I have a few things on The Who. Cause it, it's a great, that's a great performance. Listeners of, my, of this podcast know my love for The Who. Um, Pete Townsend, first, almost the first thing he does when he gets on stage is he kicks a cameraman. Um, the monitors were blown, so they could not hear themselves very well. Uh, I've actually mentioned the Abby Hoffman incident already on this podcast, but maybe for new listeners, the Abby Hoffman incident is he, in the middle of their set, I forget after what Famous war protester um, and organizer, Abby Hoffman. Yeah, yeah. Um, he comes on to protest about, uh, John Sinclair, who is the manager of the MC5, who was a famous, uh, Detroit area band, um, for... Sinclair was basically kind of entrapped and, and busted with two joints and sentenced to 10 years in prison. Um, and so he's there to protest that. Um, and I, you know, worth worth a protest, but maybe not during uh, the Who's set. I wouldn't recommend. Pete Townsend kicks him in the ass, smashes him in the head with his guitar, and <laughs> tells him, fuck off my fucking stage. Um, so, uh, yeah, here's a quote from Pete Townsend. Uh what they thought was an alternative society was basically a field full of six-foot-deep mud-laced with LSD. If that was the world they wanted to live in, then fuck the lot of them, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> Pete! Uh, Won't Get Fooled Again is written partially in response to his experience at Woodstock. Wow. Next up, Joe Cocker in the Grease Band. We mentioned the helicopters. Uh, two band members puke out the side of the helicopters that flew over the crowd. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, this is the this is the before there was the Dave Matthews tour bus uh, incident in Chicago uh, <laughs> <laughs> River. This is the this was the <laughs> oh gosh uh, the band. They're next up on my list. Uh, their first album, Music from Big Pink, had been released the year prior, and I think um, kind of reframed how a lot of people wanted to think about music and uh it's it kind of turned you know clapton especially i mean our, we just talked cream the dis- disbanding of cream clapton completely for the rest of his career changes his trajectory because of the band um and so they're super influential um but and the crowd is very aware of their connection with dylan you know going back to being being with the hawks and everything and their dylan connection um and scream f- for him throughout their set um they live very close by in Woodstock, as I mentioned. So they are, they're uh, close associates there. CSNY, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, their second ever gig. 
their first ever gig is at the Chicago Auditorium. Which is wild. And then they're like, yeah, we got some gig somewhere in New York, like, you know, tomorrow or whatever. I don't know, you know, and then they show up and there's 500,000 people. Uh, Hendrix, 9 a.m. Monday morning is when he comes on stage. He's supposed to close out the show Sunday night, but this is how delayed they are. Yeah. He comes on 9 a.m. There are probably about 20,000 people left at that point. Uh, the band he plays with is Gypsy Sun and Rainbows. This is kind of like a one-off band in between. He's transitioning from the experience, Jimi Hendrix experience, to Band of Gypsies. Uh, and so this one gig, Gypsy Sun and Rainbows, is kind of marking some of that transition. Uh, and he plays with a conga player, a percussionist, second guitarist. Those guys are all real buried in the mix, so you don't can't hear them that well. Yeah, um, you can't. Um, cleanup crew turn the piles and piles of trash into a massive peace sign. And then it was all hauled away by dump trucks. So those are my some of my fun facts. Um, let's see. Compare to Woodstock '99. <laughs> yeah, that's a that that the film. If you haven't seen it, definitely go see that. That was uh, um, it's worth it's worth seeing. I mean, it, it's hard to it's hard not to um, to to sort of shit on Woodstock '99. For so many reasons, um, yeah. Where do you where do you start? I, mean, I start with well, what's most important to me is uh, the music was all boob. <laughs> what did I just say? What word is that? Um, boob boob? was all boob. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm reading a note and talking <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> I'm reading. I'm reading something on my screen and well, talking. There, do you mean the, the, um, it was all sexual assault? Like the, which is, which the is a, there's which is a the major sexual assault. Like yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Let's do that. Sexual assault being a huge issue at Woodstock 99. Um, Cheryl Crow, they show this in the documentary, yeah. and she's being, like, catcalled from the second she's on stage. Like, take your top off, oh, stuff. And, um, like, just that is, like, an idea um, that is, like, a kind of a governing sort of backdrop to a music festival is it's just kind of this, like, seedy underbelly that's just there and that you don't have that sort of association at the original Woodstock. I mean, and, and you know, we're, we're not naive about like there. There were obviously things that happened. Um, you know, there was underreporting thirty years before uh, that uh, that obviously went on, and there there were cases, but um, seemingly far fewer. But but you have to just a casual look at the crowd um, and their behavior tells you like there there's there's something a state of mind that is so different from yeah. the sixty nine people than the ninety nine people. Um, you know, there there is a. Uh, this is like height of girls gone wild, like culture. Um, <laughs> Here, that of is like, such a good point. It's so that girls gone wild kind of, you know, assault is hilarious kind of yeah. perception, right? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, it's bro city, man. Uh, would not have been, would not have been fun. So um, yeah, mis- and yeah, and all, and you know, the uh, exorbitant prices and and yeah. you know, outsourcing everything to you know, and 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 the the. I mean, I hope this won't offend any, um, you know, uh, those who grew up with terrible music. But the music is awful compared compared to compared to Woodstock. Yeah, I'm sorry, Kid Rock and uh, <laughs> Limp Bizkit, uh, Creed are not exactly the Who and Jimi Hendrix. Um, yeah, I mean, not that there's nobody good at '99. I mean, Chili Peppers are good. Yes. they didn't show Rage in the in the documentary, which yeah, I, was, I know, um, right? Rage Against the Machine. It was, it was. I, th- I thought about that. It was sort of selective to show like the the, the unlike unlike Woodstock '69. Woodstock '99, the documentary has a very sort of point of view that does a good job of of getting across. Um, 
And yeah. Yeah. So the, so the men, the, the men. Well, I was trying to theorize yeah. about that because like, you know, Limp Bizkit, like from the stage, like Fred Durst is like, you know, sometimes you just <laughs> gotta go out there and break some stuff, you know? And, and, uh, so it's just kind of like this, like violence. It's like this purposeless yeah. violence Yeah. and rage against the machine is not to say that they're like anti-violence because they're not like peacenik hippies, but they're like purposeful, maybe. Yeah, in yeah, like no, their right. Message. So like, like, like political content, yeah, informed, right. Yeah. So they would not be down with just like wanton destruction right. for no just reason. Just because you're a bro, go tear shit up. Right. Like, they yeah. would be down like with uh, go right uh, to the New York Stock Exchange and set that on fire. Go uh, dismantle maybe do, systems yeah. of oppression. Go do that. <laughs> like yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, the, yeah, the, the, that's a good, that's a good point. And the, so I mean the the six nine nine nine. It was it was also kind. It was a um, you know I feel like it sort of uh, you know almost almost like a a money grab that that sullies the sort of that sullied the Woodstock brand. Just be you can't re, you can't put that magic in a bottle. And in I guess giving them the benefit of the doubt, maybe they hoped. That it could do that, yeah. Because um, I think ninety four, which was the twenty fifth anniversary, went off relatively smoothly, um, and so they're like, "Well, let's just do this every five years and make money, like, yeah, up the ass." And I think that is why to, why they're doing like Woodstock ninety nine. Where are we going to do it? We don't have a venue. Well, how about this like abandoned air base, and we'll just have everyone like camping on uh, a giant slab of concrete, basically. Um, yeah, great idea. Sounds like fun. Yeah, and the the rave pit, which was missing the from Woodstock '99, when uh, yeah. I knew Woodstock '69. Yeah, oh. like, I just can't imagine a, a more a, just a more obnoxious. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, I was I was living in the Netherlands, working on my uh, um, PhD '99. I was not exactly uh, in the mosh pit, um, trying to break something. Yeah, I was probably in New York. But I was not uh, at at Woodstock '99. I remember. When, I don't remember when that one happened. I remember '94 um, being a big deal because that one's much closer to the original um, yeah. location-wise, and then I think in terms of like you know feel and stuff. Um, yeah. Let's talk because um, uh, we definitely want to have our listeners stick around uh, for a for a for a. Big drop we've got, um, but let's talk favorite performances. I gotta, I gotta go down with, um, I think Joe Cocker. Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the the this is this has to be maybe in the top five performances of any live music anywhere. Uh, it's so um, just he's in a he's in an, another universe. His just his his. Well, you know, Jerry probably got to him so. <laughs> <laughs> syringe in the, yeah in the coke can um but yeah he just pours it pours it into that performance and uh you know and and uh there there's there's so much to like you know love about the, his it, how unpronounceable the <laughs> the lyrics are um the 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 memes and the bad rip uh d- dubbing lip dubs are hilarious to this performance yeah. of <laughs> trying to spell out what he's actually saying but it's it, there's maybe no one with a better soul voice he's incredible like joe cocker is. oh and play air guitar to oh, yeah. you're the only you're the band that you are currently playing with i mean yeah. he plays air guitar while they're performing like that's that's amazing um yeah he's just it is you could tell he's just he loves yeah in the same way that a you know someone would geek out on you know in their bedroom with headphones on like listening like he's just 
yeah, transported. It's I can't um, I can't say enough about Joe Cocker's performance. So good. Yeah, that's a, yeah, I mean, that's definitely up there for me. Um, what what are your faves? What's uh, the Who? I think when they yeah. first introduce them, and it's just kind of like this, back, back. You know, it's just these like feedback bursts, like from Pete's guitar. It's like you, you know, like impending, mm-hmm. impending doom is is upon us, people. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so their performance is great. Right as the sun is coming up, is peaking. Um, sun Sunday, yeah, Sunday morning. They uh, they hit the uh, see me feel me. Um, from we're not gonna take it from Tommy. And so right as the listening to you chorus is coming you know the sun is kind of shining on roger daltrey's glistening nipples uh and he's a beautiful man at this uh, point yes and uh it's it's fantastic um and then uh the ending where he just you know auto destruction smashes guitar chucks it into the audience and then walks off the stage yeah, I mean they so set and match. They I mean, sort of find what like ro- what a what rock star, um, you know, would be like. The, there, would you say that uh, Limp Biscuit draws most of its uh, <sighs> Limp Biscuit stage? It's just so ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but no, the the the, that, the, perfor- the performance from T- Pete and the the and then all the other stuff around uh, the Abby Hoffman and the other stuff. Yeah, really, really no, I mean he's and he's talked about that incident before. You know, he's not like proud of doing it or anything. He just kind of says like when he's on the stage, moment, yeah. he kind of is like this transfixed maniac that just like sees somebody walk on the stage. Like, what are you doing? I'm I, this is my stage. Get off the stage and just like you know can't yeah. see anything else aside from just like highly intense playing of music which is the only way that he knows how to do it and uh yeah well i mean yeah i would love to see their whole set uh footage of it you know check out like their isle of white 1970 set or something like that uh for a good full who set um from a similar era so that's okay that'll be my number one do you have another one uh the you know the santana uh set for so many reasons like it you know, a lot of that crowd had never seen like two percussionists. Uh, his sort of African rhythms that he's yeah fusion. super diverse va- band. Like. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, like it, I think it just uh, people like the uh, had maybe like Hendrix. They had never heard maybe music quite like that before. And then his uh, <laughs> we mentioned the Hasidists were saying, you know, Santana is like uh, he like grabbed someone by the face before he went on stage, and he's like. Just I gotta keep in tune and in time, like cause he knew he was like, you know, tripping balls, and uh, he's, he's. You can see it in his eyes, like. Yeah, watch him yeah. look at his guitar. His guitar is like a snake in his mind, and he's like saying it's it's not dangerous, but he's trying to tame it the way like a surfer might, like ride a wave, and so he's like <laughs> he's like playing this uh, guitar because um, it's alive because of the acid, and he's and he's crushing it. Um, you know, there are cleaner performances of Santana, of course, and there are, you know, but like, like it just is a, um, he's so, yeah. yeah. Well, that original Santana band up through uh, Caravan Sarai is just, they're just so good. Um, all those albums with, what are there, four? Four, I think, with the original band. So, like, yeah, it's just. Every member of that band. Um, just, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it. it's great. All right. So, I got to pick one more. Yeah. Um, the no rain like chant? I well I I I probably would just echo. I'm not going to pick an additional one. I'm going to echo yours. I think I'll go. I'll go Joe and Santana. I think those yeah. are the top three for me. Is the Who, 
Joe Cocker and Santana. Um, and uh, maybe I'd slot in Hendrix kind of below that. So, yeah. Yeah, I get my, my, my honorable mentions are sort of canned heat. Um, oh, yeah, I forgot a canned heat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Going home with the audience member that comes up, takes the pack <laughs> of cigarettes out of Bear's pocket, lights one, yes. and then just puts it back. Like, and then, so good. And he's just, like, singing the whole time, like, yeah. doesn't even stop. He's like, yeah, man. <laughs> oh, God, that's a great, yeah. Um, canned heat, man. Underrated band, dude, and they. Um, oh, the the blue yeah. the blues like they're crushing it like that 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 they I mean, so you realize that how much other bands who are sort of blues rock based like that that can't heat is really important yeah for their for their sound later yeah on. yeah too bad they're all ugly bastards or they would have been much more famous I think <laughs> they really they really were not the most attractive uh, members of a band they prove you can you can do it kids if you're talented yeah you can make it. Um, uh, weakest point. I'm guessing that they're going to be the same, but uh, <laughs> you go ahead. Well, I mean, I, the the uh, uh, I love the the no rain chant is on my best and and worst. Uh, okay, uh, for like the you know, there's something so like naively hopeful about them, like um, but but also like I love seeing um people who manifest quote unquote like thwarted like like if you just believe you can achieve you know and then watching it not happen um there's something the nihilist in me is was very satisfied by, by the uh their intentions not being made known uh how about you what did you think about the um low low lights, low, yeah. low lights? I'm sorry to do it, Shanana. Um, <laughs> you got to. It's it's, it's so such a, weird. It's such a weird booking. Yeah, I mean, it's like they're kind of like a doo wop, like callback band. Yeah, so, so, like, so, so, yeah well, Shana, for those who don't know, Shanana is like a. They were a very popular band in the 60s and 70s, but but all they the, did like 50s doo wop covers. Yeah. They do covers of of 50s doo wop and like kind of repopularize it for yeah um, that generation. Uh, yeah, and they went on right before Hendrix, so they had the second to last slot in the festival. It's bonkers, yeah. Like, um, but it does not hold up. It's 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 interesting, I guess, to look at. But like, it's almost like a stunt booking. Like, hey, you know, it'd be funny. It's like let's put in. That's like right. Looking back on it, is I think at the time it's not though. It's not seen like that. Um, I I think it's a stunt booking. I that's the most generous definition. Um, this will be hilarious. Yeah, I I do have to say the airplane is, and I I love the airplane. I think Yorma Uncle Sam's Blues is great, but then the Won't You Try Saturday Afternoon um, is it's tough. I think they've been up for a day. Yeah, and yeah, they're yeah. trying to do these three part harmonies, and um, it's I and I the think it, I just think like, it just wasn't yeah. wasn't there at least on that song. I think the you know I think the uh, Uncle Sam Blues is good. But uh, what do you what do you wish? What performance do you wish was? I'll go first. That 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 wasn't in the film that you wish was in the film. Um, mine is uh, uh, CCR. Um, I mean, I I was just listening to that record like two nights ago. I mean, may, maybe maybe my favorite band. Um, they're just they they for me they define the sound and sentiment, and it's just it's just so good and simple. And so I would have, lo- and they they played it like, like two and three in the morning or something, right? It was uh, there was hardly anyone, uh, yeah, anyone 12 around. Yeah, twelve thirty to one twenty a.m. Yeah, so um, 
it didn't it didn't have a lot of fan participation and Fogarty has talked about this as well but um that that's what I would have loved to have seen um seen at a better time spot and I think because I think that the the passion and the um and political content in their music and I think would have been a the crowd would have eaten that up uh, I would have loved to see in the film. Well, you can see some of this stuff on some of these like deluxe reissue versions yeah. of the movie and stuff like yeah. as bonus features. So you can see some of this stuff there. Uh, but I got two. One of them is the band. Um, the band kind of right as they're heading into the Brown album. Uh, that would be. It's kind of surprising they weren't. I don't know. Maybe the, I, don't I know. think it was their manager. Like same with like you know. It's just like no. Uh, not going to do it sort of thing. Um, yeah, Neil Young's not in it either. So give me some CSNY. Would have loved to see see some of that live because um, there's just not a ton of live footage of them in that era. And then as much as they don't like their performance, at least some of the band members, maybe not every band member. Yeah, this is a great gotta segue. Go, got to go with the dead. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, the the Grateful Dead. Now, um, folks, you need to stick around because if you if your ears weren't just blown off by what you heard, um, Matt and I Matt and I go through. Get ready. Um, what are yeah, let's transition over to uh, a special guest. Yeah, we've got a special guest. So uh, yeah, just go ahead and uh, maybe take a half tab and um, uh, enjoy. That, and then we'll come back at the end. Good morning, campers. Welcome to a special uh, episode of Napalm in the Morning. Uh, hi, Eric. Yeah, hey, Matt. This is a real uh, red-letter day. We're, we're, pretty, we're pretty excited, pretty giddy in studio here. Uh, why is that, Matt? Okay, well, let's get right into it. The, this week, we are covering the uh, film Woodstock, and our guest to start this week was a featured performer at that historic event. Uh, keyboardist during a great transitionary and historic period for the band, the Grateful Dead, member hey. of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is Tom Constantin. Welcome. So nice to be here. Hey, <laughs> looking good. Yeah, you're, you're yourself as well. Look at, look at, all, that, look at all that luscious hair. Uh, you know. I, I agree with myself, yes. <laughs> awesome. but it's, it's a reaction. Once I got out of the Air Force, I was going to let myself go. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. So, yeah, we can uh, in some of the early your after you uh, initially joined the Dead, your hair was quite short, and then kind of over over the time, you know, the there next decades, it has grown. Threatening me with an Article Fifteen court martial because <laughs> my hair was too long, and then I went to another place where my hair was too short. I mean, what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, we want to hear about all that. Uh, That's a, a court martial. Okay, so uh, yeah, where where to start? I mean, I guess um, you know. Uh, or listeners who are who are um, unfortunate enough to not enough to know, like where where does uh, Matt and Tom, where does the Grateful Dead stand in kind of the 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 the, the pantheon of, uh, of of music, especially as it surrounds the sort of era of the '60s? Well, you know, I'm not the one to ask. I was in the thick of it, and uh, we lived in it. Seemed like a different planet. Uh, of course, we shared the uh, planetary functions widely. And that really burgeoned in the ensuing decades. But at the time I was with the band, there was a whole sense of community in the hate. And uh, we were exemplars of that. And so were the charlatans and the airplane and Big Brother. Uh, the list goes on, and uh, I'll get to them. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a community um, of, you know, young people kind of coming together, uh, culture, music, art, uh, and, <clears throat> and drugs, um, kind of together in this uh, kind of area. And it's, it's a really, you know, looking back as somebody that was raised by hippies, um, uh, <laughs> they tell me it was quite a uh, magical time. So uh, I'll just go with, go with that. I, I was raised by squares, and they thought it was also a magical time, but for different reasons. <laughs> well, we can stipulate that. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned maybe, a, and feel free to go back as far as we need to go, but um, you, you went to, I, I went to Berkeley Go Bears uh, as well. Um, you, you were there in 61 is when you, when did you first go to Cal? Yes, 61. And did you always know you wanted to go to music school? No, I definitely did not. Uh, in 1957, with Sputnik, suddenly the nation had this big spurt of interest in science. Imagine that, mm. looking back today. Yeah. But uh, science education was included upon that, and without a lot of difficulty, I got a science scholarship. Uh, I took courses in calculus, uh, astronomy, uh, chemistry, botany, all sorts of stuff. A Russian, I was a little bit prescient, but uh, there was a very great interest in science in that time. And on a lark, I thought I would go to the music department at Morrison Hall and take the entrance exam to see where I'd place. And during a break in that, I ran into a guy that uh, I agreed with about a lot of things musically, and uh, he wound up inviting me to share his apartment, uh, a fellow named Phil Rush. And he introduced me to his friend, <laughs> Jerry Garcia. And we were sharing our music back then, uh, my land, 60 years ago. And, and really at the, at the, at the forefront and of, uh, you know, what we become known as psychedelic music and, and music experimentation. Um, and you studied, you studied with a lot of interesting people in, in the early 60s. Uh, as well, and including stints abroad in, in, in Belgium and France? Is Belgium, that right? Germany, and Italy. Okay. And Switzerland also. You have to go through Switzerland to get from Germany to Italy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. So I, I, I took that with the, with the package. It was pretty enjoyable. Great, great. And you and so you're, you're kind of going, so you have made the switch then in your, in your head. Your focus is now on, on music, I guess, after... What that that and I guess what turned you for sure from your kind of science trajectory toward I think it's going to be music actually. It wasn't even a single event. Uh, the prior May, I had appeared with the Las Vegas Pops Orchestra playing a composition of my own for piano and orchestra, and uh, this in the middle of preparing for a science curriculum. Mm -hmm. The I, I was greedy. I wanted the whole package. I was into languages, which came in handy when I was in Europe. And uh, all sorts of uh, aspects. I've been uh, privileged to see some of the great works of art. When I lived in Milan, I was about a 15-minute walk from the Last Supper. Mm. And it was free on Sundays, so I'd go then. And uh, the whole cultural uh, palette that was available there. Did you have a sense, and we're going to talk about, obviously, Berkeley and kind of counterculture um, a, a bit as well. In, in, in Europe, obviously, it's, it's having a similar interesting 60s as it evolves. Were you, did you see signs of that, um, what would later become such a powerful movement uh, in, in the later 60s? Did you see um, kind of youth movement, youth culture in Europe as you were exposed to it as well, kind of evolving? Did that influence you? Yes, but it was very, very different. 
uh, in the U.S. has seen, I would say, not until the mid-60s was evolving in the Bay Area, in the East Village of New York, uh, Los Angeles, a couple of other oases of sanity in the middle of the country, uh, Oberlin, Antioch, uh, College Town, stuff like Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. Whereas in Europe, it was a bit more political, especially like in the Netherlands. Uh, most of my uh, fellow students when I was in Italy voted for the Communist Party. But they were, of course, no more communists than the uh, Christian nationalists are Christian. So that was just <laughs> sort of a symbolic thing. Uh, most of the intellectuals right. fell into the internet. In fact, fashionable. some of them <laughs> David Bedford, Luigi Nono, Cornelius Cardu. Uh, so there was a different sort of scene, and they felt that they were more socially engaged, pardon my French. Uh, whereas in the U.S., it was a general opening up of possibilities and breaking the surface tension between various groups of people. Uh, the process is meant, I would say, in the late 60s. Now, mind you, in 1963, the Beatles were already in operation. And right. uh, they were, we were on a trajectory to meet and uh, have a wonderful fireworks show. You With the Beatles? Well, the, when the Beatles uh, encountered the American rock bands. Oh, uh, yeah. I, th I thought it actually. Yeah, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. I was excited for a, a Grateful Dead Beatles fireworks show that I didn't know about. Okay. <laughs> oh, well, no, no. We might simmer down to one band you know, eventually, and that, that's sort yeah. of happening. Um, did your, uh, your you would later, um, you know, the war would become, a, for your generation, a huge defining feature. Was your family... Um, pro-military? What did they think about the war as it, things are heating up in Southeast Asia? Oh, my land. Oh, they did not approve me at all, especially going into music. Uh, my stepfather, Dad Constantin, uh, was a D-Day. He was an Army veteran. Okay. So uh, I, I could fill in a couple of other blanks for you, but I hope I don't need to. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, uh, I was predestined. I, I could not uh, dodge the draft any ethical or honorable way. And uh, except, actually, I enlisted in the Air Force, which the Army accepted as an excuse for getting drafted into the Army. I figured programming a computer for the Air Force would be better than programming an M-16 for the Army. And yeah. uh, I don't regret having made that choice. So, so you enlist, what year was that that you enlisted? 1965. Okay, so so this is so Marines are first introduced to Da Nang in, in the spring of 65. I mean, how much is Vietnam, I guess, on your radar radar at that time? It was in my face all the time. In fact, in the last uh, year of, of my hitch, uh, they were transferring a lot of people in my squadron to Tan Son Air Force Base in Vietnam. And as it turned out, I didn't have, have enough time in my hitch for another tour. Mm -hmm. So I kind of missed out on that. And I could have re-upped and probably had gone to Vietnam, except I had a better opportunity of waiting me in this <laughs> in the form of rock and roll band that was on tour inviting me to join them. So we, we, um, we've read, we read elsewhere that to tell if it's, if it's apocryphal or not, that, uh, that you had the clever idea of, of, saying that you had communist affiliations and so that knew this would not give you a top security clearance in the Air Force. Did that happen? It is something like that, actually. I did reveal in conversation to the wrong officer that I had been to communist rallies when I was in Italy. Oh, okay. Uh, mm -hmm. But they, uh, 
they were like in a central plaza. Uh, uh, most European cities have these central plazas, so that's where they would set up and give speeches and stuff. And I was on the way shopping for bread. <laughs> so it was truthful. I was there. Right. And yeah. it was really good bread, too. So uh, yeah. uh, I framed it in just the right way for them to not think I was really trustworthy, which suited my purposes excellent. Yeah. So how does this, this work? You're in the Air Force. Uh, you get made a sergeant, correct? Correct. Okay. And then you get these sporadic kind of leaves to go and record with the Grateful Dead. How does that process work of getting a leave to go? That, uh, that was an interesting time. Uh, I uh, Twice I made Squadron Airman of the Month, and the I went Base Airman of the Month, and the Base Commander put me up one year for Airman of the Year. So I accrued all these three-day passes, mm-hmm. okay. and I used them to take off time to go to L.A. to record or go to San Francisco to hang out, or uh, any number of such things. Now, I had to be somewhat circumspect and delicate about this, because uh, I had friends in the prankster circle through which I was getting mescaline and LSD and bringing it to my friends in Las Vegas. <laughs> so uh, uh, I, I boned up on communism, <laughs> and the questions were please why, and moved on. The the you know as as you know of course that famously um, troops deployed especially uh, like drug use became a a big part of and from the army's point a problem in the in the ranks. Um, yeah. What was that for for domestically? You know, obviously that that becomes a more prevalent part of the culture of the the twenty somethings in that period. Is it was it? I mean, as you're alluding to it, that was also a thing that was happening on bases as well. Definitely. Well, mostly in Southeast Asia. I understand uh, Napoleon had the same problem with his army in Egypt. They were getting into the hashish. And <laughs> it, it affected their, uh, he said, morale. Uh, I think in uh, Vietnam, it served more as a rite of passage, uh, which was better than uh, like in World War One when it was getting drunk. Mm-hmm. Okay, or yeah. World War II. The stories of that are legendary. And uh, it, it was a different scene by then. But you're right. Uh, the effect came when all those troops came home, right? And uh, they, uh, uh, they, they, some of them probably brought tie stick with them. Who knows what? Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't privy to that. I, I spent my whole my whole hitch stateside, so right. I, I never. I did TDY a couple times. That's temporary duty. Georgia Air Force Base, and once at IBM headquarters in Los Angeles. And uh, you'd laugh when I described the top of the line computer in 1967. The, the CPU, 128K. Ooh. Yeah. Most thing could ever use that much. You know, it was, uh, I feel like a biplane pilot talking with Neil Armstrong, you know, <laughs> compared to the way, way things are now. So you, you had your music education, you had continued focus increasingly on the keyboard, right? And, uh, yes. and, and, and meanwhile, you had been. In contact with uh, Phil Lesh, that the you know you had been in, in yes, classes with in the early '60s. So, so you did did was your did did your music sensibilities change? Because they're you know obviously they're go, the the dead are evolving. Um, did they they were sending you tapes and you were kind of thinking about them and and there was that also. But I, I was on to what Phil and Jerry were on to as well. They had a mutual admiration society that went way back. And Jerry, at that time, was into 
uh, Appalachian folk songs. Oh, mm-hmm. Long Black right. Scenario, uh, later called Peggio, uh, Matty Groves, uh, uh, British Isles, Appalachian. And uh, it, uh, we were uh, moving targets. We still are. And we sort of grew around and into one another like vines. And uh, the future uh, probably was unforeseeable, most of all by us. Well, and that, I mean, you take the maybe the most dramatic leap I could think of when I think literally one day you're a sergeant in the Air Force, and then literally the next day you're playing a show with the Grateful Dead. Uh, I believe it was in Ohio. Um, Athens, Athens, yes. Yeah. So, here they were too short. So, what the heck? I, I don't know, man. Like, what the heck was that like, that transition? I mean, were you ready for it, or I mean, or what? I don't know. I had, uh, a few years earlier, I, I flew to Europe and suddenly was in Germany and Belgium. And actually, there were two weeks also in England and then Italy. And I, I was still 18 years old. Mm-hmm. So culture shock was already my life. Uh, Dullying back about 12 more years, uh, I spent my to- toddlerhood living with my mother and grandparents on the Jersey Shore. And they were immigrants from Norway. My first language... And so at the age of five, I had to learn this foreign language called English to face the dreaded kindergarten. <laughs> so i had been having these steps all along, and uh, this was just another one. There have been a few since then as well. Yeah, yeah. So that, that prepared, th- those experiences prepared you for what would be another major paradigm shift. Uh, that's interesting. Prepared might be a stretch. But it gave me a clue. Right. Yeah. So what? let's get into a little bit of um, the politics of the era, um, maybe your political views, opinions um, with the war. Is that during your uh, – while you were enlisted, does it change um, at all, your, your opinion? Uh, my take was that – as many people thought, World War II was the last quote-unquote good war uh, with the purpose yeah. that the whole nation could get behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, mind you, it, as well as World War I, were a lot about petroleum sources. Uh, the Ottoman Empire held them in 1917, and uh, there was a problem there. Uh, Japan had commandeered the large orifice in Indonesia, uh, and Germany was interested in Africa. That's what they were doing there. Uh, but uh, since then, it's been that to the exclusion of everything else, more and more. And uh, I think sometimes putting a moral veneer on it is stretching somewhat. Mm-hmm. The, the uh, you know, having gone to um, been and lived in Berkeley myself, uh, did the. Um, did radical politics when you, you know, you were there through the, through in and out during the entire sixties in, in the Bay area and Berkeley, like, um, you know, SDS or the American Indian movement or Cesar Chavez, or did these, did these other, um, did those inform and, and change your, your political views and, and, and did it affect how you, would you, would you say you were in, uh, uh who did you identify most with maybe among in, uh, your views towards the war? I tried to get everything assimilated, put together. I felt that pretty much every one of those 
sources that you mentioned had legitimate beef. They had an issue that they were concerned about and needed to be addressed, some of which had been addressed, and some of them still remain. Uh, some of them, um, you know, back then, the radical left was about like the radical right is now, the, the Maoist. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, there was just yeah. no pleasing. And uh, there was that. Oh, I'm, I remember telling a, a communist I knew that I didn't believe in a classless society. I thought everybody ought to have class. <laughs> they don't have a sense of humor always, so... So, uh, well, that was the thing about the communists. They didn't have a sense of humor, or at least the extreme ones. Now, some of them in Eastern Europe, they were either uh, resigned to it. Uh, in 1978, I had a tour of, uh, I was in Hungary and Yugoslavia. And uh, you could really see the difference between the Eastern Bloc behind the Iron Curtain countries and Yugoslavia, which was much freer. Mm -hmm. uh, see the footprint of oppression on all their faces in Hungary. Mm -hmm. But driving from Budapest to Zagreb, I got stopped at the border, as everyone does. The security guard has me open the trunk, open your suitcase, he looks inside, he finds a copy of Playboy I picked up in Vienna. He riffles through the pages, looks at a couple of pictures, closes it, puts it back in the suitcase, closes the trunk, and waves me through. <laughs> it was a lot more free and easy in Yugoslavia. <laughs> Surprised he didn't confiscate it. <laughs> yeah. If I had been going into Hungary, he might have. Okay. But Yugoslavia was a lot more free and easy. Uh, speaking of kind of um, free and easy, um, maybe something not as free and easy, but you are, and when you enter the band, you are coming into an existing band that has an existing sound. Um, how do you navigate that, um, that, that issue or that, uh, how do you find your space within that, that system? I have two answers to that. One is that, that that's no different from what everybody in the band was trying to do. Everybody was exploring yeah. and seeking their identity. Uh, I mean, if you think of going to see the band of the eighties or nineties, their identities were pretty well established and settled by then. In 1968 and 69, uh, there was a much more valuable stew, uh, uh, malleable, I meant to say. Mm -hmm. And uh, as far as my point in it, uh, I was trying to adapt, and uh, they were trying to be helpful. Uh, we were all making it up as we go along, like Indiana Jones once said. <laughs> Uh, so the so the the re in the recording pro I've heard you maybe uh, speak elsewhere about you know that you're trying to find your sound that could you know sonically there's a bigger band and you've got it in the, and a lot of players and two percussionists and to try to like maybe that was the recording process um, did did you work that out live did you guys work that out in studio your kind of your musical space as there was the actually a pretty skitsy relationship. The recording process and the live performance process were very, very different from each other. Uh, for one thing, technology was burgeoning. The technology of sound recording and production was exploding. And we were like kids in the candy store. We wanted to try everything. Uh, we wanted to stretch our imaginations to meet the challenge of the equipment. Did you have a big advantage uh, with your computer science background? Well, there's computer science and there's computer science. Now, most of the uh, computers that I was dealing with in the 1960s are scarcely applicable today. I, I wrote a program for 12-tone computer composition, which turned into a string orchestra piece, which was performed in Las Vegas. 
but uh, there was precious little application of that sort of thing in the rock contest mm -hmm. context. And uh, the computers were then not six, anywhere near sophisticated enough to do the signal processing that we can do now. You can do the equivalent of a soundboard yeah. on your screen. Uh, that was unimaginable back then. Uh, you had the uh, right. magnetic tape splicing. We worried about general generation loss. You know, the, the tape you dub has lost a little bit of sound quality from the previous one. Mm -hmm. uh, it makes splices. Uh, I remember Dan Healy, he gets a grease pencil, and he puts it down and marks a spot, and then he cuts it away and goes, whoop, 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 until he finds exactly the beginning. And uh, it was also analog. It was hands-on. It was very, yeah. very different. Computers nowadays, uh, oh, my land, you can't live with them, can't live without them. <laughs> Do we do we want to maybe we can talk about um, we've got a bunch of uh, sort of Grateful Dead related questions. Should we talk about okay. some wood, some Woodstock ones as well, or what do you think, Matt? Sure, dive into them. Well, you mentioned Playboy before, <laughs> um, so I'm not bringing it up. You brought it up. Uh, <laughs> Playboy After Dark. Our audience probably needs to know this story. What can you tell us about that night? Not as much as you're thinking or chortling over. I mean, they didn't dose me. Uh, they, <laughs> right, they so, for, so for, for our audience, tell them, tell them who got dosed. You know, I really don't know. Uh, I, I think some of the people on the, on the staff. Uh, I think the, like the sound and the camera crew got dosed in, a, in coffee is, what I, is the way one of your band members told us. You and Barbie might have tippled a little bit. Uh, I'll never know, and if I did, I wouldn't tell. <laughs> but uh, it, it was a remarkably phony thing, like I imagine most TV sets are. Mm. I mean, I was behind what was supposed to be an elaborate hi-fi set with knobs and everything, and it was just a facade. I could have, I could have put right. my hand through it. And uh, next door, there was this library. I say library. And um, I looked at the bookshelves and I looked at the books. I, I think Mrs. Pickerel Goes to Mars was the most interesting one. Describes them as not even worth stealing. Now, they, <laughs> they probably bought them from the yard yeah. and put them on the shelf. Right, right. Because they shelves. were the right color red or something, yeah. It was, And they were so uh, eminently concerned about that. And uh, But anyway, you know, TV was a newer medium then. Mm -hmm. um, I remember we got a TV in New Jersey in 1949. It was a brand new medium then. And they were talking about making it up as you go along. Mm -hmm. There were uh, some you know, revolutionary genius like Ernie Kovacs came along and tried new things and blew minds, and then we we're off. Well, Eric and I watched uh, the performance of Mountains of the Moon uh, the other night uh, mm -hmm. from the Playboy After Dark, and uh, I will just comment that your playing was fantastic on the uh yeah, that's very kind of you. I must give them credit. That was a real harpsichord. Uh, it was super a, cool. Yeah. yeah, it sounded fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking if that's if that if they did that like with the mixer somehow, like they did it. But yeah, it sounded like a real harpsichord. That was cool. It was pretty much WYSIWYG. Uh, we we made do with what we had, and uh, it's amazing how many times the force came from above and welded it together. Live Dead is the first of, at this point, there's got to be over 100 uh, official releases of Live uh, Dead albums, but that was the first one. And this kind of captured the band at uh, Fillmore West and Avalon, I believe. And 
Mm-hmm. Why? What? What? What goes into the decision process to do that? Make a live album, right? That you've made three studio albums uh, at that point. Why? Why go live? Well, what was happening? It was uh, we had not yet delivered the album, and it became Oxymoxora. And uh, Warner Brothers had some close to $100,000 into it, which was a fair amount of change back then. And they were getting antsy to see a product. So we shot back at them saying, well, how about this? We'll give you that album plus a two-record set of live performances. And at that point, we started recording every show. And we would listen to the show afterwards mm-hmm. to critique it. Just for your own purposes? Interesting. Well, to see if this was the live show to send them. And there was always something wrong. Uh, the balance wasn't right. Somebody wasn't pleased with his own performance. Mm-hmm. So that or the other. Until finally, that one weekend at the Fillmore West, we had one that nobody complained about. And there was a moment of silence after we listened to it. And I think it was Jerry said, there, <laughs> send him that one. <laughs> it was the first one that nobody complained about. Now, amusingly enough, there are some other shows from that same weekend that are now Dick's picks. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I've listened to them and I can't for the life of me think what, catch what was wrong with them. Yeah. But the one that became live dead was our default choice. And uh, the one we went with and uh, lo and behold, a bunch of others have appeared since then. Yes. Yeah. They, well, they're multi-track recorded. They sound great. Um, uh, and I mean, so you think that's a good representation of, where was where the band was in early '69? You think the Live Dead album does a good job of capturing that? I would say it does, uh, but so does Dick Sixteen, yeah, and a number of others. Uh, for one thing, the onslaught of new material mm-hmm. after a Working Man's Dead and American Beauty uh, brought up, and of course all the projects after that brought on a whole lot of new material. Mm-hmm. But we weren't in that territory yet, and so our sets from one show to another varied less let me put it charitably yeah uh be a saint stephen or excuse me dark star saint stephen 11 love light sequence there'd be an alligator caution sequence uh we were just getting into segues yeah now they're well known and some of them even predictable mm-hmm. you know scarlet fire you know they have names yeah you know and the fabled in song and cassette label <laughs> and uh that hadn't uh, been taken off yet mm-hmm. in my time. Mm-hmm. So uh, that all the more makes the Live Dead album typical. Is there a favorite show or live memory that uh, you have from your period? I have a lot of delicious moments. There was one time in Chicago where uh, something I played must have struck Pigpen's fancy and he saluted me from across the stage. <laughs> was he on the, the bongos? <laughs> on my soul that I wear to this day. Uh, and they were all quick. Now you see him. Now you don't. What mm-hmm. was that mm-hmm. sort of moment, uh, which were uh, typical of the psych- psychedelic medium, mm-hmm. uh, like a, a, a gnome uh, who delivers a press, a present behind your back and then disappears around the corner. What's that? You know that sort of thing, and that I, I love that experience. Well, and the Dead would become the most famous band in the world for this sort of their live, the live experience, the crowd experience, the like. You know, there's nothing like the, and so it's just it's really interesting that maybe a transition to sort of thinking about Woodstock that, you know, you guys are hitting your peak right as sort of the what would become the most sort of iconic live uh, music concert sort of. 
ever. A question that um, Matt and I had that really ties into some of our Vietnam War stuff is that we were thinking, you know, like Country Joe McDonald, he would later work with his band as well, but Fogarty, mm-hmm. Hendrix, um, yourself, like all all veterans who also played at Woodstock. Does your did your service influence the music? Did you guys talk to each other about this? That this was an interesting issue. Like, did you recognize that? Like, how did that? Was it not a factor? Well, it was certainly in Country Joe's face, and he had a lot to say about it. A lot of his songs are about exactly that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, two, three. What are we fighting for? Uh, you write right. Number of things, but uh, 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 Joe was a brilliant, brilliant person. I mean, he led that band through thick and thin. Uh, on on tour, he's almost always reading a book. He's always expanding his mind, and he's coming up with new material. He has a, a one from about I would say five or six years ago of natural sounds, mm. and he continues to be a source of creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the other guys were less into it. Uh, some of the L.A. bands that were more into the gloss, uh, the Vegas bands. I grew up in Vegas. You might have noticed that's where I got this accent. But uh, <laughs> they were more into the gloss and everything. In the 60s in Vegas, there was a rule for the bands, the lounge bands in particular, as you can get as freaky as you want with your hair or your costume, but everybody in the band has to wear the same costume. Huh. <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> here in the Raiders would have done well there. They probably did. Blockbusters. My favorite name there was Stark Naked and the Car Thieves. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the, um, you know, the, the, you know, that, that we were, we just watched the film and obviously you've seen it and you were there. Um, what, take us through some of the, the sort of your most iconic memory, what, what stands out to you? If you think about like the, from, from even, even arriving to the venue at Woodstock, like what that was like to the sort of waiting to go on stage and, and all that entailed. Yeah. We'd love to hear it. Pigpen and I came in on the same helicopter and it was mind blowing. It was like New York city without walls. It was, uh, the ground was covered with people. And uh, fortunately, we land backstage where there was elbow room. Yeah. But even that was happening. And uh, uh, you see one famous player after another just walking by. Mm-hmm. I remember sitting backstage waiting for our ride back to the hotel after our set. And one person comes by gushing, saying, what a wonderful thing it was to hear that we'd just done. And then Paul Cantor came by and said, you know, you guys just didn't have it today. And then somebody else came raving, you know, so it, it's, uh, we were buzzed in all kinds of way. And uh, it was, it was not so much fun speaking of buzz for the guitar players on something about the grounding. They were getting shocks from their strings. The stage was rickety. Uh, Phil was speculating about tomorrow's headline, huge rock and roll disasters, hundreds maimed. <laughs> and uh, the stage I don't know if you're. I don't think this. It's supposed to rotate the. Hey, uh, Susan, and turn around. And our equipment was too heavy to move, so the uh, they just had to break down the previous band and put ours up, and that had a little extra time. And the humidity. It, it was uh, pick up a piece of paper with the palm of your hand, kind of humid. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like last time I was back east. Uh, I live in the high desert of New Mexico now. Uh, it was so humid that I wanted to take my face off and wring it out. <laughs> 
<laughs> and that's what it was like in upstate New York that time. Yep. Yeah, it was just like that when I was there a couple of weeks ago. It was quite humid. Um, the so, do you have a favorite uh, performance that you saw while you were there? I Woodstock. Yeah, uh, I heard little bits of Janice and of Credence, okay. and hearing over the speaker, it's um, my response is, "Oh, yeah, that's them." Okay. Yeah. It's like somebody interviewed Yogi Berra and asked him to do word association with names, and every time they mentioned a name, he said, "What about him?" <laughs> and it's kind of like that. Yeah, yeah, okay, Janice, what about her? <laughs> yeah. Oh. Okay. Um. So the well the the uh, war. Getting back to Vietnam a little bit. I mean, it's is a feature of the festival itself and the film Woodstock, um, and there are several bands and artists that are explicitly anti-war, either through speeches that they're giving from stage, through the songs itself. So we mentioned Country Joe, Joan Baez, mm-hmm. uh, Creedence, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, The Airplane, um, and even Hendrix's performance of The Star-Spangled Banner uh, mm-hmm. is taken as, as in that respect. So can you, let's, I, I want to get your um, your interpretation of kind of how the war influenced artists at the time. One of the uh, interesting segues that's been going through my mind, and uh, I'm into those, is there are two tunes that symbolize both ends of that. Uh, one is Downtown, Petula Clark's hit, mm-hmm. okay. Coming Out and Have a Good Time, which segues quite easily into Eva Destruction, which is what's in your face when they fly into Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And it's the same underlying rhythm of both. And that's what it was like for us. They were, they, was the, they were both the background of our lives at the time. The, the, it's, been, you know, it's been talked about that the, um, the dead weren't, weren't overtly political, uh, always um, kind of on their, on their face, sort of, the, sort of the music and other things were, um, and psychedelia was more, maybe more important. What, how did, behind the scenes, how did the other band members and yourself and your group feel about the war? Is this something you guys talked about? Did it inf- inform like your, um, how you went about the music? I think at that time, a lot of the people in the band simply wanted to uh, avoid the issue and just be into the music. Uh, mind you, Jerry was very much into local politics. Uh, he supported the strike of uh, the light shows, for instance, uh-huh. uh, the Avalon and the Fillmore. Uh, he wouldn't cross their picket line. So at the very local level, he was very engaged. But the uh, national level it took a while to emerge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the, the, somebody like uh, Dylan or John Lennon in later Beatles or post-Beatles career, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of... he Lennon kind of becomes almost this, like, avatar for for sort of like the right. counterculture for a period of time. And, um, uh, you know, he gets a lot of pushback from that. Uh, so was it like a fear of that, that kind of thing, like a political pushback against being outspoken or is that just, let's just, let's just jam and focus on being creative and, and that kind of thing. The title forces were there uh, for sure. And with a special strength back then, but, uh, we were so engaged in the music. Uh, the music was the uh, the wind in our sails. 
and that's what we concentrated on. Mm-hmm. And uh, since then, I found that, uh, of course, the therapeutic value, it crowds everything else out of your mind, including the war, uh, which somehow seems like the they always have that in the background. It's in the background now. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's this wonderful speech in uh, The Third Man, the movie. Uh, Orson Welles is getting off the uh, giant Ferris wheel in Vienna and says, look at the Borgias. They had war, tragedy, death, destruction. But they produced Michelangelo, Leonardo, the Renaissance. Meanwhile, beautiful Switzerland, brotherly love for 500 years. And what did they produce? The cuckoo clock. <laughs> and so, uh, yes, uh, uh, we all wish the war would end. But uh, creative artists still create and yeah. occasionally uh, get messages through about the futility of the war, which people listen to. Mm-hmm. There's a, another, um, uh, we'll have, we have a lot we could talk about Woodstock. I, I want to definitely uh, put in here, you know, you're this sort of Wells, where's Waldo for like these important touchstones in sort of music history. Another one was sort of Altamont. Um, and, uh, you know, what do you remember from that, uh, of that, you know, now seen as tragic event, which it was? Cowering backstage most of the time. Uh, I heard uh, the stone set. You say, you, you said cow- cowering backstage. Yes, because we knew things were happening that we didn't want to be part of. And uh, we decided not to play. Uh, Bill Graham was really miffed about that because we were supposed to play that, that night at the Fillmore. And we just stiffed him on that. So we went to a Grissant's restaurant on Geary near Pacific, actually at Pacific and licked our wounds mm-hmm. and uh, picked ourselves up. I think we went to the Fillmore the next night and played and uh, all wound up hunky-dory eventually, except, of course, you know, for the events at Altamont. And uh, as you only, well, actually, I know I have heard the Rolling Stones one more time, but uh, it's, it's, it and Woodstock has, have been defined as signal events in time and to my way of looking at them, they're just part of a continuum. Uh, the tides come, the tides go, and you put down a flag here when it gets to you know, three feet in depth. Yeah, okay, if you want to say that, that's fine with me. In the in the uh, Playboy After Dark um, set, you know, Jerry talked about, um, you, you know, and, and again, the, the Grateful Dead are sort of this, this for for right or wrong like okay well that's the hippie movement um right mm-hmm. you know like it's just this caricature of the hippie movement and um you know jerry sort of said like look we're kind of moving beyond that like this you know the hippies are dead like um did uh did uh the, the, the you know the hippie movement if we can call it that was that something that um was uh more important to some members of the band like uh, as a band ethos like how did that how did that function or is that something that's just been mythologized when i first heard the word hippie it was a put down meaning someone who was affecting the trappings of beat hipness but not getting it right and later i mean the public media uh, newsweek time life yeah. magazine sort of glommed onto it and then these catchphrases and all uh, you know by the time something gets into catchphrases uh, you're already not looking at the picture anymore. <laughs> you're, it's it's past. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like they say about the third time you've heard a stock tip. It's no longer true. <laughs> and we weren't into the. I mean, costumes. We changed them every day. 
It was like a decking of uh, decking the halls with what you're supposed to look like. Or those things that you find at carnivals where you stick your head in a circle and you're supposed to be a lion tamer or something. Uh, that's the, the view they had of us, but we were into other things. T- Tom, I got to ask, like, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of some crazy clothing myself. Do you have an awesome... Um, Woodstock outfit. Do you have? Do you have any? Do you have any of the? What are? What are some of the? Who was? Who was designing your guys' uh, sort of look, or was it just on your own? How did that work? Well, actually, I'm wearing it now. Black is the new paisley. <laughs> uh, Garcia for the last several years just wore black. Right. Uh, but uh, costume was definitely part of the thing back in the '60s, of course. Right. I met Paisley. Uh, then tie dye came in. And tie-dye was first touted, to me at least, as something you could do itself, yourself at home. Yeah. And then suddenly it became industrial strength, and people would do these interesting things. You know, the, here's, uh, here's your baseball team on your belly, the tie-dye around it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but there were uh, other trends. I, uh, the charlatans uh, popularized uh, what we call a thrift store Victorian. <laughs> you know, they would look like 1890s, but they yeah, they paid for it. My dad tells me that uh, getting beetle boots was like the biggest thing when he was probably like 12, 13, something like that. <laughs> uh, right. He had to have sure. the, the beetle boots. Bottom trousers. Yeah. Op uh, art. Although that was more 80s. And, and also, I got to say, like, uh, uh, have you won medals for your facial hair? Because you have some awesome facial hair over the years <laughs> I know, I, i've won some other benefits <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, it must have been the the obviously the friends i have who are ex-military who are just like i just don't want anyone telling me to cut my hair like i i'd like you know being able to like it was just sort of a, re- a resistance <laughs> that did that help it, you like it, i'm going to grow this mustache however i want it is going to uh, uh it did feel liberating, to be sure. Yeah, and I, I felt constricted in the uh, military, so uh, uh, their idea of esprit de corps and morale is for everyone to look the same. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, let's look. Um, New Orleans, nineteen seventy. Uh, there's a drug bust. Uh, I think. Everybody but Big Pen and me. What's that? Everybody but Big Pen and me went downtown. Okay, so was that just luck of the draw? They just didn't come to your room by chance? No, neither of us was into cannabis at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so. Big Pen was on the verge of uh, converting from Southern Comfort to Bourbon Deluxe, the last <laughs> one of the latter for him. And uh, I was uh, listening to William Burroughs' advice to try to make it without any chemical coin. And this was a, definitely a chance to put it to the acid test, so to say. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that song, uh, at least partially, is uh, recreated in Truckin', um, the, or the events um, there. And that that kind of was the end of your era. Is that that's correct? Well, a couple things happened. Uh, the band uh, told me they wanted to move on. They were like the material in Working Man's Dead was becoming more and more and more the material the band was doing. I also had the opportunity to write music, direct a show mm-hmm. in New York called Tarot. Right. Uh, the characters were all from the cards. And it was a smaller pond, but I'd get to be a bigger fish. 
and I went for it. Yeah. Yeah. And so you now you played live on some songs that eventually ended up on Working Working Man's. Um, so you were there for Correct, yeah. part of that. Now, did you, uh, from what I've read, it's kind of like a, you know, mutually decided, uh, you know, mutually beneficial to sort of part ways at that point. Um, playing that stuff <laughs> uh, live, that stuff that would later be on Working Man's or kind of working on that. Could you sense that they're heading in a direction that maybe was not going to fit your style or? Well, by the time they went in the studio to record that, I was already in New York. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, 1970 technology wasn't like today where I can plug in my laptop and have a MIDI feed and everybody can hear my mistakes worldwide in seconds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, you've turned to, you mentioned Tarot. Um, there's some other instrumental music, Touchstone. Um, is this... That was a band that, and that, that did t- uh, Tarot and we continued to play as a band for about... a year and a half after that yeah and that's it's instrumental focused is that now the dead a lot of the dead music is instrumental but it's not solely instrumental is this a by design going in that direction or uh can you tell us about kind of how that process worked it it was because none of us we didn't have a lead singer (laughs) five good players by necessity (laughs) go with what you got (laughs) it didn't stop some bands from having singers um you know, but well, Herb Albert uh, did well. I mean, they hit us with uh, the record company saying you ought to have a singer. But uh, I mentioned Herb Albert. There were several. Uh, Sergio Mendes, Mendes in Brazil, '66. Right. You know, vocals are like pa pa pa. Did did you the you know the the Dead would obviously obviously later go on to and and to sort of tour kind of incessantly? Or did you enjoy the road stuff? Or do you kind of um, you know, it can also t- it can also take it out of you as a person and a musician to be constantly touring. Did you did you um, I guess did you feel like you and uh, you had had your fill of the road by the time you were ready to do your own stuff? It depends on how how it's done. Uh, some bands I've toured with, uh, uh, they would have an impre- incredible schedule of uh, a lot of time driving. Uh, we. Uh, I was one in one band. We had a tour we called the Star of David tour because of what it looked like on the map. <laughs> all points of the all corners. <laughs> yeah. On another tour I played in, let me see, Hartford, Buffalo, and Providence on consecutive nights. Mm. Things like that. Yeah. Now, there are reasons for it. Mm. In this case, it was because the Buffalo gig paid three times as much, but I had to be on a Saturday. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things like that come up. Uh, Montgomery, Charlotte, and Birmingham on consecutive nights. I mean, when you you see a band posting their schedule, uh, I look at some of them, I think, oh, man, I'm glad I'm not along for that one. <laughs> Portland, Maine, and Portland, Oregon, one day to travel. <laughs> right, right. So I don't miss that. Uh, a lot of the other things, the travel, you know, having a day off, perchance to see something somewhere, uh, one of the last times we were in England, we stopped by Stonehenge, things like that. Yeah. Uh, I was nice. in film score in Paris, and I snuck away one afternoon to go to the Louvre. I'm not sorry. <laughs> You've um, you did some um, jazz is dead, Starship. These are kind of more recent things, among others. Um, how has that experience been? Kind of 
maybe partially a rekindling of the past, but bringing it to a new new generation, new audiences that uh, maybe didn't see see before. The past is irretrievable. Uh, we'll never experience anything like that again. Mm-hmm. However, whenever a few of us veterans of it bring our insights and experience, uh, there's a chemical reaction. And that is the kind of thing that will make memories for the future. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the fire continues to burn. Uh, it, the light continues to shine. Are you still, um, Are what other projects have you been working on that maybe the um, public doesn't know about or will, what, what do you, yeah, what's in the, what's in the chamber? The public doesn't know about. Uh, I have a keyboard duo, this is like 20 years with Bob Brailoff called Dos Hermanos. Like Dos is D-O-S-E. It's not a, it's a measurement of <laughs> And we get as close as we can to 100% improvisation all the time. And for some of our shows, Bob hooked us up MIDI-wise to video. So we play the light show as well as what you hear. Oh, wow. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Sometimes looking, uh, sitting on the fence, looking in both directions, wondering if I was playing what I saw or what I heard. And <laughs> Interesting. There, it was a, a Do we do have live, live gives coming up of that, of uh, Dos of dos Hermanos? I hope we, in fact, I've been talking with some. Uh, I, I will... Put the word out however I can when that happens. Yeah, let us know. We'll I've tell our fans. <laughs> I'll pass it along. I've been, uh, I've done several shows with the string quartet. Uh, we, we do songs like Eleanor Rigby, mm-hmm. As Tears Go By. Yeah. I did a version of Along yeah. Comes Mary. It's fun doing the arrangements and uh, a lot of fun uh, in performance. And you have that classical we, background too that you can do those things that maybe some musicians Oh, yes. I'll throw in a, a, a Renaissance piece by Philippe Verlo, or last time at Gypsy Sally's, uh, Kristen and I played a cello piece by Anson Webern. So uh, we have deliberately wide horizons in that regard. How has COVID, I mean, just looking at kind of your, your tour history, you know, of late, it, um, you know, there's the gap from 2019 to this year. Uh, and I saw, you know, there's a little bit of activity in April, but um Obviously, it's put a, you know, on every musician's, you know, it's put a cramp in their ability to play. Um, you've probably experienced similar, I'm assuming. Much less than a lot of people. I mean, it really cramped a lot of people's styles, and it's taken a lot of courage for them to go out mm-hmm. and continue to play. Uh, between royalty checks, which there there is a trickle, but it's still enough to be helpful, and Social Security and a couple of other things, uh, every once in a while, I get noticed that a waltz of mine was performed by a ballet company in Indonesia or something like that. Uh, <laughs> I'm in a state of semi-retirement. I'm comfy now. Yeah. But I uh, and so uh, you know, if this had hit me 15 years ago, I would have been in dire straits. Yeah. Now I mean, yeah. but now it's given me a chance to space out, recollect. I'm sorting through sheet music and recordings from days of yore. Uh, I'm more organized than I've ever been, although I know that's an endless quest. And so uh, there has been a silver lining for me. But uh, yes, oh yes, uh, playing is where it is. And uh, we all have only so much time left. I'm presuming I have less than some. And so I want to make the best of it. Well, uh, Tom, I got, I got to say, for, for Matt and I as you know, professional historians, like we, and it's great that you're thinking about your legacy, you're thinking about like your, like it's it's really important for, 
future generations. I think to, to you know, that all of this, you know, we, we have no ways of knowing what kind of a, a good archive of your work, your written stuff, your, you know, music, uh, other things could be of use. It's kind of like, uh, yeah, I mean, I wish that more maybe artists had were thinking about that in the way that you are, because it is something that, uh, I feel like, um, you know, I'll sound like an old person, but like, you know, li- live music, there's not the priority on sort of, um, uh, craftsmanship and, and, and maybe performance skill and, and to, to, to hear, uh, musicians, I think it's going to be a, a well of kind of inspiration for future ones who are going to want to tap into playing and performing and live music and and knowing your instruments. And so like an archive like yours is, so I guess like keep doing that, please. You're, uh, you're on it. Well, you know, the digital realm has made that a lot easier. And, uh, you know, back when I'm researching some pieces, especially classical ones, I've li- I would listen to recordings made 110 years ago. I mean, uh, I was such a snob. I, the only players I would buy records of were born in the 19th century. <laughs> Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's a miracle that we have uh, recordings like that. There are recordings. There's a recording of Brahms playing from the 1880s. And my it's land, wild to think about. Yeah. But yes. And it's getting more and more detailed as the time goes on. So uh, I, I'm thinking about the people that didn't have the opportunity that we have now uh, to get that on. So uh, I'm counting my blessings and doing the best I can by them. So Tom, I want to put an I want to put an idea in your head, which is you had mentioned on okay. one of your that that uh, um, I think in one of your recordings that in the piano keys or in the in the strings you'd put change in there that give like weird tonal qualities when you were playing them, and you had you had uh, equated that with gamelan as a as a sound. Um, we have two gamelan ensemble sets here in at our at our campus, and we have a lot of uh, as a um, center for Southeast Asian studies. So, uh, putting it out there, uh, a uh, Tom Constantin gam- actual gamelan ensemble um, collaboration, <laughs> we could do something like that. Well, It'd be know, really those, cool. Uh, actually, does some of our dos hermanos improvisations, we would uh, attach the keyboard to a gamelan patch. Ah. So we would essentially be playing a gamelan. Now, the prepared piano that you referred to before uh, was an idea pioneered by John Cage in the 1940s. You put any number of things in the piano. I would put coins in the strings, clothes, pins, combs. Yeah, we've all done that accidentally. Something's on the key and strings, and it vibrates, (laughs) and yeah. Yes, Uh, and uh, there are numerous possibilities of things you could do. And Cage's music has definitely been compared to gamelan uh, simply because of the sound qualities. That, that you have. And uh, yeah. I recommend some of this music from the 40s. It's very rhythmically strong and very different from the chance aleatoric pieces from the 50s and later. Uh, but uh, yes to the gamelan. And uh, a couple of times I've, uh, in Berkeley, I've seen touring gamelan groups. Yeah. And discipline is mind-blowing. Uh, having uh, like four players playing exactly the same thing. I mean, I'm used to symphony orchestras doing that. Yeah, but yeah. the gamelan players doing that. Speaking of which, there is a well, it's a, a true story. A, a gamelan troupe toured Paris in 1893, and Debussy heard it. And yeah. there's a piece of uh, it, it, cha- it. I think it changed. If you Debussy, like it changed. I I have a pet theory that gamelan because it is nothing. No one had ever heard anything like that in the Western orchestral tradition. That mm-hmm. it, it's so kind of 
out of body the way it sounds compared to that like yeah there was also a minstrel troupe from the uh, United States and uh, he there's yep. a piece called minstrels you hear the banjo pretty much and the tambourine right. in, in the 70s I was in a show uh, I was the the band the piano called three black and three white refined jubilee minstrels and it was three black guys and three white guys and we did 19th century minstrel material you know highlighting the uh, sociopathic stereotypes that were being portrayed therein oh, wow featuring uh, songwriters like Stephen Foster, uh, Dan Emmett, George Christie. And uh, it was a wild and crazy time. Wow. Are there are there things you want us to, we, we'd love to promote, so you've got some of this up. Where, where's the best place for, like a main website or a, a social media? What's the best place for people who are interested in, in, in your stuff to go to? Uh, the best I can do right now is stay tuned. I have a bunch of projects coming out. Uh, Bob Braylaw just called me with a guy who's a marketing art CD. And he said, hey, about th- how about throwing your CDs in too? And I have. I have a couple of compilations from my aforementioned recordings out of my story. Everything from uh, uh, Liszt and Rachmaninoff to Scott Joplin and Ernesto Nazare tangos and a couple of original pieces. Wow. And uh, I'm about to get a bunch of stuff off there. So uh, to echo your sentiment, stay tuned. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> we will. Wow. It, well, it's been so amazing having you, Tom. Yeah. Um, we really want to thank you, and uh, thanks for you know giving us your time. It's been it's been fantastic to talk. We've learned a ton, and uh, it's it's just been amazing. Thank you. Thanks. You so. are so very welcome, and may the elephant in the room always be your friend. Well, that was awesome. Yeah. How cool was that? Amazing. I mean, we're we're kind of a big deal. He was so so down to earth. Uh, in in the meantime, um, such a generous guy with his time uh, and post time. He shipped yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah tell us his book and seven albums uh, came in the mail. So we need to put a, we need to put a picture of that on the uh, on the on the gram um, on the print no, on the Twitter. No, yeah, the Twitter. Yeah, uh, just 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 a nice and he is really sharp and brilliant. Um, yeah, you know the he's probably the best or the most classically trained musician that the band the the dad have ever had. I mean, right? He's he studied in three countries for a right. decade um, as a professional musician, classical, classically trained. Like so good. Yeah. Well, let's stay on that vein with our this week's book of the week. We're a little out of practice, folks. Uh, it's the summer, you know. Things are get a little iffy right. and wishy washy. All right, we're gonna. This is a total cheat. This is a total, total uh, fan sort sort of book here. Dennis McNally, Long Strange Trip: The Inside History of the Grateful Dead. He was a there uh, is the historian of the Grateful Dead, uh, which is my future job, hopefully. Uh, so if anybody <laughs> is uh, listening that wants to. T- tenure, tra- tenure track position. Yeah, uh, you know, I can provide credentials. Um, yeah, yeah, just let me know. Uh, hit me up at Napalm Podcast uh, on the Twitter. Um, but yeah, this book is obviously, you know, a deep dive into the uh, history of the band. Uh, Woodstock being, of course, a part of that history that several band members did not think too fondly of. Um, Tom was not quite as harsh on it. But uh, um, yeah, so, you know, you want to hear read about the acid trips 
the trip to Egypt, uh, Europe 72, um, whatever, uh, you know, go there. I think, oh, that was yesterday. Yesterday was, uh, we're recording this the 28th, so we just passed the uh, 50th anniversary of the Vanita concert in uh, Oregon. Uh, so shout out to uh, Naked Pole Guy. Um, <laughs> Eric, I'm not sure if you know what that reference is. I don't know Naked Our Pole new, Guy. Our uh, new, new mascot? throng of uh, deadhead fans uh, will, all, will all smile and nod along with me. So um, Look forward to meeting you, yeah. Naked Pole Guy. <laughs> R.I.P. Naked Pole Guy. Um, so yeah, that's uh, the book of the week. Long Strange Trip, Inside History of the Grateful Dead, Dennis McNally. Book of the Week. All right. Well, we can't. It's hard to top that. Uh, yeah, we uh, can't you know, be topped. F- follow us. Uh, um, there's first time listeners. If this brought you in, um, there's a lot more where that came from. Uh, yeah, I don't know how many episodes we've done, but uh, it's a lot now. Around forty some, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I have no idea. We dive into the the history of uh, the Vietnam War through film and a lot of films that you have seen and a lot that you haven't seen. Yeah, uh, that are. That you should see, or maybe and we some watch Hall- them for you, and some Hallmark movies too. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so let's, uh, yeah. Napalm Podcast is the uh, handle, and uh, say hi, make a request, uh, or tell me you think I'm an asshole. That's cool too. Yeah, and if you know any cool people like Tom 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 Contenton, tell them, uh, hey, come on this podcast. Yeah. We'd we'd love to have them. Yeah. All right. So for uh, let's do our uh, rating. Yeah, le- le- I um. I thought about this, like... Uh, New listeners probably don't know, the uh, rating is the... Uh, we provide dongs, and uh, dong is the Vietnamese currency. Right, so a 10 is the... 10 dong is the is the highest, uh, zero dong being the lowest. Um, yeah, it's very complicated. I give this... I give this movie... I give it eight dong. It It's such a... Uh, it's weird in that it's not you know it's 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 you have to watch it in chunks it goes on and on and on um yeah it's the festival three and a half hours i think the director's cut is maybe but uh yeah it is it is as we've said such a slice of sort of a moment in history that i feel like this is a thing that you're gonna sit people down and say like you know historians of the future will be watching like what was that like like this is what that was like part of it Mm -hmm. definitely so uh i'm giving it eight dong which is high that's very generous of you, Eric. Uh, I appreciate your dong, prov- uh, and I'm going to raise Whoa. a half dong to eight and a half. That's one of the, that's one of the uh, highest. Yes, yeah. it's quite high. We're pretty dong stingy on this yeah. podcast, yeah. Um, but uh, I think eight and a half. It's hard to it, – it's got P. Townsend in it, so it's got it's hard to give it much lower than that. Um, uh, there, you know, there, there, some of the hippie naivete looking back on it stuff. You know, you maybe roll your eyes a little bit, but like, but as a historian, it's, it's like it's like really interesting. It is, yeah. and it's earnest. Like they're not like faking it. Like they're not for sure. There they are, and so it, it is a fascinating glimpse. It would be awesome to have like more footage of like the hog farm, honestly, like and what's going on. Oh there. right, yeah, exactly. Um, so a whole so, spinoff series and like the yeah yeah what's the, going on over there. Maybe we could maybe propose that a Netflix called the Hog Farm. And it just takes place at the hog farm. You kind of hear you're like doing in yoga, the background, you're doing yoga over there, and right? You and you hear in the like, background like uh, Jefferson Airplane, you know, playing and stuff. But you don't ever those see of you that your stage. Kids off, uh, you know, could check. Yeah, like announcements. That would be a funny like. Uh, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I. That's my idea. Nobody's allowed to steal that. Uh, so yeah, eight and a half. It's it's a it's a fun film. It's a nostalgic film. Um, it is a good glimpse into the era of of great of music war. 
of 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 civil rights protest civil unrest uh and it's it's good yeah okay and if yeah if you're a woodstock 99 watchers like go watch this one this is a much better this will make you feel better about uh humanity humanity yeah exactly. okay yeah all right well for uh napalm in the morning i've been dr jones i've been dr yagel see you later bye first, last, and only podcast for the Vietnam War through film.